post Morrison new X-Men run, a lot of people go, well, what is this? And I go, I don't know, but don't get mad at me. I'm just telling you what happened. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is comedian Jay Jordan, who you may know from appearances on The Tonight Show, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and HBO's High Maintenance. He is a 2020 Logo 30 honoree and one of Vulture's comedians you should and will know in 2020. Jay is here with me today to talk about Warren Worthington III, the high-flying angel, or sometimes archangel, a character frequently noted on this podcast as the primary source of my childhood gay awakening. Jay, thank you for joining us. How are you today? I'm doing really well. I'm very excited. I apologize for breaking up the pattern. The boy-girl pattern. Well, it's not your fault. So as I said at the end of last week's episode, I was hoping to do a spooky Halloween episode this week. But the guest I have lined up for that is a very busy person. I started scrambling immediately. And then I was like, I bet Jay will do this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Jay's also a busy person, but Jay loves this podcast. <laughs> Jay loves oh, I love the podcast. And Jay loves the X-Men. Jay will always take like a minute out of his day. Yeah. So some quick notes on last week's episode before we begin. As my father immediately corrected me, Professor Xavier's apparent death at the hands of Grotesque the Subhuman occurs in X-Men 42, not X-Men 46. He also noted the issue where Bobby helps Warren put on his harness is issue 14, not issue 13. My heterosexual father knowing exactly which issue is the one where Bobby helps Warren put on his underwear, that's called allyship. My guest Tony and I also talked at length about an early 90s story where Bobby takes Rogue home to meet his parents and she pretends to be his girlfriend, and then they go on a road trip. The dinner with his parents is, as we said, in Uncanny X-Men 319, but if you want to read the road trip sequence as well, that part of the story is in Uncanny 323, so I recommend picking up both parts. The 323 road trip story is the one where Rogue's in the obscene Daisy Dukes and Bobby could not give less of a shit. (laughs) And is just annoyed with her because she's not helping with the flat tire. Last week's episode prompted the most emails to the fan mail account I've received so far, which I think in part is due to the fact that Tony has a lot of fans of his own, but also because we got into a deeper conversation about representational politics I wanted to read a couple messages we got from bisexual men who listened to the pod before I turned to Jay, a noted real-life bisexual man himself, for his own thoughts on that topic. Justin Park writes, Hi, first just wanted to say I'm a big fan of the pod. As someone relatively new to comics, it's super helpful to have someone walk you through the history of these really complicated characters in a fun conversational way, instead of just reading a long-winded and confusing Wikipedia entry. I tried to figure out who Exodus was the other day, because he looked cool in Hoxpox, but ended up just giving myself a headache. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. Honestly, don't worry. I'll get to him in like episode 57 or whatever, and we'll help you figure it out. I've been looking forward to a Bobby episode for a while, and it more than lived up to my expectations. On a personal note, I really appreciated the discussion of potential biphobia and erasure when talking about gay characters, especially gay male characters who've dated women before being quote-unquote revealed as gay. As someone who is bisexual, it means a lot that you're thinking about these things, and you're absolutely right that the only real solution is enough representation so that we don't have to fight amongst ourselves for scraps. Jeremy Large writes, Hi Connor, just wanted to say how much I enjoyed this week's episode about Bobby Drake. I'm a bisexual man, and while I'm usually into having comics with diverse queer representation, the reveal of Bobby's sexuality in Bendis' run did not sit right with me. 
There's nothing in this character's history to indicate that he's gay. This is just a cheap ploy, I was thinking. Oh, how wrong I was. By 30 minutes into the podcast, after all the compelling textual evidence you've talked about, I was nodding along going, okay, no, this has been here all along. I lol at your description of his very first appearance at X-Men 1. <laughs> I really appreciate the discussion you had about representation, coming out stories, different queer communities, claiming characters, and so on. I read a ton of the Claremont stuff you mentioned off in your show, but I certainly never picked up on all the queer subtext that you tease out. Just goes to show that you can have been reading X-Men comics since you were a little kid and still be learning new things about these characters and seeing them in new ways. But at the same time, the idea that Cyclops and Logan are in some kind of bisexual poly triad, that doesn't really fit with how I think about those characters at all. Even if I thought Wolverine was bi, I really don't buy that he's sublimating his sexual desire for Cyclops. However, your show has repeatedly uncovered new facets of these characters for me, so I may yet be convinced by your Wolverine episode, which is probably going to be like four hours, right? Thank you for reigniting my passion for these characters who have always been my favorite superhero team. I look forward to your show every week. Well, thank you so much, and thank you both for those emails, which were really lovely. I was nervous about that conversation when we had it, because we were obviously two gay men having a conversation that's sort of an intra-group conversation. I'm glad that you can both see where I was coming from, and I'm interested in Jay's sort of take on that whole question. I think that Bobby, as a gay man, serves the purpose of you realizing why he's never lived up to his potential, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. why mastery of whether it be his powers over hydrokinesis and cryokinesis or like him just like (laughs) choosing to become a certified public accountant. Right. (laughs) There is an escapism in some of like his folly that I think is like him denying himself any opportunities to even be with men. Bisexuality as a point of representation in the X-Men is there. Is there yeah. it's there with Mystique, it's there with Shatterstar, it's there with Prodigy, it's there with Dokken. It's there. It's there with Kitty Pride explicitly and implicitly now. It's there with Ileana in the New Mutants panel where she talks to the Shi'ar Death Corp. Like there's a lot of bi and pan sexuality representation. I think Ileana is pretty gay, but the rest of them I'm there with you all. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that as a bisexual, you just kind of have to be very happy that we are getting a lot of representation. And I think Bobby as a queer man is way more helpful if he's it's it's helpful that he's gay i think that from an experience standpoint if you want to bring up opal lorna mystique kitty you're you can bring those situations up but it's still from a narrative standpoint him being gay has a purpose you're not erasing his bisexuality you're just saying this is truly who he is if he's standing in his full self right i think that and this is something i didn't quite articulate last week but i've been thinking about it more as i've gotten responses on twitter and on the fan mail account and all of them have been pretty much in this vein of people agreeing with our final takeaway but i think that if bobby were bisexual it would undermine the characterization issue because the point is yes. he was not satisfied in those relationships with women and those relationships with women were not honest and so if you're bisexual then he might have been missing out on things he wanted to experience with men, but he would have been perfectly capable of having fulfilling, honest relationships with those women. Yeah. The issue is that he wasn't attracted to women and was lying. You know, like that's the thing. I'll take it one step further. When that shame and unhappiness, when it becomes malignant, he becomes 
Age of Apocalypse Iceman. Yeah, there you go. He's in a brothel with hundreds of women pretending to enjoy it, but also bragging about betraying his friends. And Age of Apocalypse Nightcrawler has to kill him. Like It becomes pure machismo. Yeah. We actually have a, a question about Angel later on about the AOA. I, I will say the reason that AOA is probably my favorite 90s story, and I think it's a lot of people's favorite 90s story, is the way it specifically twists so many characters into the worst possible version of themselves, but makes it very believable. You're like, I can absolutely see how this character in a different circumstance could have become this person. Let's take that opportunity to pivot to Bobby's lifelong crush. (laughs) We are here to talk about Warren Worthington III, the Avenging Angel, who is one of the other original X-Men from 1963. And I thought that this would actually pair well with the Bobby episode because Angel is the other character that for many years they did not know what the fuck to do with. Oh my God, no. Spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. So if you enjoyed that behind the scenes analysis of like, what do we do with this character of Iceman last week? This is sort of the other half of that conversation. Jay, what do you love about Angel? You suggested him for your episode. I'd love to hear about your backstory with the X-Men and with this character. My initial introduction to comic books, the first comic book I remember holding, it was the issue where Gambit's on the cover. It's a holographic cover. It's basically the reveal that Gambit was responsible for recruiting the Marauders for the Mutant Massacre. And I was like, this artwork is so cool. These characters are so cool. And you have this insane contrast of like this blue-skinned character with blonde hair. And I remember saying, what is that? What is that? I've watched X-Men the Animated Series. Archangel doesn't show up until the Muir Island Apocalypse episodes. He and Bobby notably both only show up occasionally because, again, what do we do with these characters? And so then you get to see him uh, a bit more fleshed out. And I was always like, the reason I like Angel and Archangel is because when you're a little kid, you have a lot of questions about things. And he was one of the few characters that was so easy to get because you went, oh, he can fly. Why? <laughs> he's got Because he's got wings. wings. <laughs> Very easy, visually appealing. And then you get into the actual costuming early 90s late 80s a thing that happened a lot was playing with colors that i didn't know Mm -hmm. male characters were allowed to play with even from an energy signature standpoint but when he was archangel this is the super famous x factor costume the blue and pink costume costume. when i first saw that i was like whoa blue and pink and kind of the bisexual flag as a costume it is the bisexual flag as a costume (laughs) and the only other character that played with pink as much in their costume that was male was gambit Gambit. yeah yeah and so i remember thinking i like these two characters i don't know why and then you never get the actual 
mutant massacre story. You never find out about Harpoon and Blockbuster until you go to the comics. Right. Because there hasn't been, there was never going to be a media, like kids. A cartoon was never going to show that. (laughs) Yeah, there was never going to be a kid-friendly version of him getting crucified in the Morlock tunnels. Or of the Morlocks getting genocided. Like, none of that is going to, yeah. Or like him getting gangrene or like Cameron Hodge lying and saying they have to be amputated. Yeah, like I have to have your wings amputated. Right. They can't put that anywhere like the closest you get is that in maleficent i think the guy steals her wings and that's like a th- that's like a very thinly veiled like metaphor for sexual assault it's a rape yeah. metaphor in that yeah which it kind of is in this case also and we'll get there when we get to cameron hodge so i was always like how is this character that seems delicate so dangerous how is he this unhinged and so mm-hmm. you start to go oh this is trauma this is a character that has like actual trauma yeah we don't get to see we get to see trauma play out in comic books a lot but i would argue with the exception of logan with the exception of wolverine from like a physical trauma played out throughout their x-men mythology warren has had I think he's top three as far as like, it's crazy. I would crazy. say he and Betsy yeah. are really, t- and that's why. They get along. Yeah, I said this in the Betsy Braddock episode, episode one with Tini Howard. My preferred version of both of these characters is in the 80s before they transform into Archangel <laughs> and into Ninja Silo. But I also understand why they're characters that became much more popular in those transformed versions that were allowed to be more aggressive, that were allowed to be more in your face. And I liked them both in the 90s, specifically because I thought that they were really interesting foils for one another. And the way that their relationship was born out of the two of them processing their trauma together, and like both of them being like, huh, my body was transformed by a supervillain and I don't really know who I am anymore and I killed people. Who am I? And then they start dating and are like, well, we can be with each other, I guess, and figure it out. That's a really cool relationship. With everything they've now each been through and they're both back in sort of their original forms to some extent, although he can switch. Yeah. You get what I'm saying? It would be a really interesting time to bring them back together and I'm excited to see what Teeny does with that deadline. Not necessarily to say they get back together, but to have them in the same space again. I think they should at least bang it out. (laughs) I, there were a few instances, the astonishing run before, uh, House of X and Powers of 10 came up where they were on a team together. Yeah. There was the whole thing where he was one of Nate Gray's horsemen for a second. Oh, when he was a horseman of salvation in the, in that, uh, uncanny. And Betsy had to awaken Archangel again to cure him of that. Mind control. I think that if they hook up again, it's going to be one of those like page turn reveals. Like I haven't seen any seeds planted for any of that. It's just going to. No, you're going to turn and they're going to be in bed. <laughs> yeah. 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 Shit. <laughs> right. I think right now Betsy has a deal with another big dumb blonde that she has a history with her brother. And her then- brother. <laughs> I do think that it's not a coincidence that she's attracted to Warren. Ooh. Because I think he's very similar to Brian. Yeah, wait a second. You know what I mean? You're telling me this tall, handsome guy from a good family who's also a member of the Hellfire Club? And is also blonde and is also kind of an arrogant prick. We might get along. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> and similarly, I think his attraction to Courtney Ross and to Saturnine. Oh. Saturnine finds Betsy to be obnoxious, but Betsy and Saturnine, the part of the reason they don't like each other is because they're very similar, I think. Ooh. And so much like we often find ourselves dating our parents, I think that Betsy and Brian both find themselves dating or attracted to people who are similar to their twins. Now, in Brian's case, he breaks out of that by dating Megan, who's nothing like Betsy. And uh, I'm really excited to see more of Megan as Excalibur goes on, because I love her. Anyway, we'll get back to Betsy in a bit, because I have more thoughts on that. And she is obviously very tied to Warren. I wanted to, before I forget, address that one bit in Jeremy's letter where he talks about Wolverine and how the Cyclops and Logan stuff doesn't really seem to fit his read. So here's my thing. I will eventually get to a Wolverine episode. The problem is, as you point out, I have a lot of reading to do before I feel comfortable doing a Wolverine episode. (laughs) He is the most established character of anyone in this cast in terms of the wealth of material. And I was never super into the Wolverine solo books. I mean, I've read a lot of the original Claremont one, but there has been so, 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 so much over the 30 years since then, almost 40 years now since then. Connor, I feel like you would have to do a patch episode you exactly. would have to like, do I feel like there's an old man Logan episode. <laughs> and like an episode on Weapon X with Silver Fox and all that stuff. Like I feel like it has to be a series. This is the same problem I'm having with Monet. It's like I'm trying to figure out how a Monet episode will even work oh. because it might have to be like a three-parter. Oh, this is what you do. You have two little episodes and then they combine together. Into and then one, episode. one episode. That's a, that's a great idea. What I wanted to say about Wolverine is because a couple people have asked me, including my father, who's always fascinated by this stuff because he didn't even get that Storm was bisexual, which is like all over that run on the page. Anyone? Okay. Well, the the funniest thing about Storm's ability to not only be like sexually dominant, but be free is that I go, you guys don't think she would just do what she wants to do? That's That's literally what she's always done. <laughs> That's her whole deal. She walked across Africa at 12 because she felt like she was not like she's not someone who's repressible. What I wanted to say about Wolverine is if you don't see the Scott and Logan thing as like an Eve Sedgwick sublimated, that's fine. Whatever. I disagree because I think it's there from very early on. But Wolverine to me is in a very specific tradition of a male warrior character that has a homoerotic thing going on underneath it's almost a greek myth kind of vibe it's always sort of comrades in arms brothers in arms where it also has a romantic undertone and i would say that some of his relationships with the weapon x characters vibe that way his history with Sabretooth sometimes vibes that way And I don't think it's a coincidence that when they decided to do an alternate Wolverine who was gay, they had him be in a relationship with Hercules. Extreme X-Men. Greg Pak's Extreme X-Men. No one even really blinked at that because they were like, yeah, that makes sense. Because Hercules and Wolverine both have that like sacred band of Thebes or like Spartan vibe where you could totally buy that these two soldiers are also sexually involved. He also is obsessed, obsessed, because Claremont was obsessed, but it becomes Wolverine's whole deal with feudal Japan and Bushido culture, the samurai, who also had a very similar cultural norm 
of homosexual relationships between warriors. If you go back to the history there, I was a classics major. I don't know as much about the bisexual stuff in samurai culture, but it's definitely something that's there. So I think if you just look at it that way, and then you look at his close relationships with all of these soldier men from his past and Nick Fury and like all of it, it just, even if he wasn't fucking them all, there's just a very homoerotic vibe to a lot of his stories. And I think that perhaps if you're looking for bisexual representation, you might enjoy going back and looking at that because while I don't think Marvel is going to say on panel Wolverine's bisexual, just because he's like one of their most valuable characters. And as we talked about last episode, the big two companies tend not to do that with male characters. I do think that this stuff on Krakoa is as close as we're maybe ever going to get to them just saying it outright. So if it's an idea that appeals to you, I would suggest going back and looking at him in that context, looking at him as though he were a Greek hero or a samurai or one of those figures, because I think it's absolutely 100% there. And it's bisexual rather than gay, because he obviously is also very, very into women. He's like quite a ladies man. And... They have adjoining rooms. I, I mean, listen, don't... they live in a they live in a throuple room. Why do what... you need? Yes, it's clearly happening right now. I'm just saying, if you think it's coming out of nowhere, I'm just offering you an alternate lens with which to analyze the character. And I'm saying this now in episode not about Wolverine because it is going to be a long while before <laughs> I feel like I have done enough research to do a Wolverine episode that I'm not going to have to issue 50 corrections on the following week because he has so much shit but also there's going to be a lot of people that don't understand the nature and importance as you stated of homo social bonds yes in warring phallocentric male centric cultures wolverine is a symbol of virility yeah he's a symbol of sharpness and the and the ability to impale things he's a walking penis and he's small and has a complex about it i mean there's like a lot going on there i agree with you 100 percent. and i mean uh 616 hercules is currently in a homosexual relationship with novar yeah they finally did that i mean first of all the actual mythical Hercules was bisexual because yeah. it was part of a lot of ancient Greek cultural norms. And it specifically is great that they have him hooked up with this absolute twink <laughs> because that is the vibe, right? Yeah. Which was not always a good vibe in actual real life. I mean, no bars of age, thankfully. But visually, it looks correct <laughs> for ancient Greek mythology. But I also really love years ago. Are we going to say it? Are we going to say the joke about the funeral? Yes. Yes. So when Hercules died a while back, this was like 10 years ago or something, I forget. But there was this funeral issue. A lot of people don't know about this because Hercules, like I said last week, is an ulcerating character. He was one of the champions because it's like, we can't have Thor, but here's Hercules. Like he's sort of that <laughs> character. And so you may have missed this, but he did die briefly a while back. And there was a whole funeral episode uh, issue. God, my father calls them episodes because he's a thousand years old and <laughs> I'm getting infected by it. There's an issue where they all basically toast Hercules at his funeral. And all of these different female characters talk about what an incredible, hot, sexy lover he was. And then North Star is like super awkward and feels the need to leave. He's like, I beg your pardon, I'm leaving. Excuse me. Because he doesn't want to get into a whole thing. Ever since that happens, People have been like, this is a character it would be so easy for you to just say is queer because the source material he is. So it's like, just do it. And because if you go, oh, we can't let Thor 
be right. queer. We can't talk about the fact that Vikings used to blow each other. Yeah, no, so exactly. we can't talk about that. But we can get away with L.A. Thor being queer. Exactly. And like Greek mythology already, pop culturally, there are enough jokes about that that it felt safe to do. And I'm glad that they finally did it because when he had his Hercules solo series, editorial was like, oh no, he's not bisexual. And everyone's like, mm. <laughs> So I'm glad that they've changed their minds on that. But I do think that the extreme X-Men thing was also them testing the waters on that for Hercules. And again, nobody blinked. Because it was an alternate universe, nobody said boo about it. But the idea of Hercules and Wolverine having like a battlefield romance felt completely plausible to just about everyone. Yeah. So I think that was great. Anyway, to go back to Warren and to your discovery of him as the blue archangel, I do think that a lot of people who came in in the 90s love this character more than people who approach it from the classic stuff. Oh, yeah. I like him in both because I found him very sexy in the classic stuff. And then... As Archangel, he's obviously super cool. And frankly, it's still very sexy. Like, please, sure. It's big and blue. You know, it's still beautiful. <laughs> I don't care. There's a lot of joking sometimes about how the late 80s, early 90s, and into especially the late 90s, turned every character into sort of an edgier version of themselves. And Silak and Archangel are often pointed to as the two primary examples of that. The thing with Archangel is that he goes from being this suave playboy with feathery wings, and that's all he can do is fly because he has wings, into this tortured, blue-skinned freakazoid who has metal wings that shoot razor blades when he gets angry. That he can't even control That he can't control. It has a mind of its own. Yeah. And there was also the idea... That he had to go against his team members when we talk about him versus X-Factor. Him being the embodiment of death. Him still being the most memorable and most important horseman of Apocalypse. There's so many parts of the X-Men lore that kind of hinge on Angel. If we talk about the mutant massacre. If we talk about their connection to Apocalypse. If we talk about... I mean... Oh, okay. If we talk about uh, this, this kind of is crazy to bring up. If we talk about Uncanny X-Force, there are at least four, three or four instances where you go, oh, this is super important. When we talk about his transformation back into Archangel in the first X-Force run, there are moments where you go, oh, he is important. He's very important. Yeah. He's almost like the... He's the conscience and the soul of the team sometimes of that original five, because whatever trauma he's gone through, it's a reflection of all the shit that they've all been through. Mm -hmm. And he was, I mean, he was like, not the most innocent of them, but he was the one you go, oh, Marvel girl. Oh, no, that's terrible. That happened to your, that's when your powers activated with Hank. You go, Oh, baby, you're going to be okay. And he says, no, it's not. I have to fix it. With Bobby, you go, you'll figure it out one day. With Scott, you go, oh, those are, oh, an orphanage? Oh, no. With him, you go, things were okay. Until the Dazzler and, you know, parents murdered, blah, blah, blah. The stuff with his parents. But yeah, yeah, I think the difference for him is that he leads a very, very charmed life until he gets knocked off his pedestal really hard. Yes. And you see it happen it's not a tragic backstory it's a tragic in story present tense yes sequence of events you do see this character who has it all 
get ravaged and fucked up on the page. And I think that that is why he has been an enduring character for a lot of people. Rashida Renee Ward on the Storm episode said that while she likes Emma, she sometimes has trouble with Emma because Emma is too Caucasian for her. (laughs) And Angel is the other character where I think that he sort of exemplifies white privilege. I mean, so does Betsy to a different degree in a way that's, you know, complicated. But I think that it would be easy for him to be a character that was not relatable to a lot of people. And forcing him to go through so much heinous shit has made him feel more accessible to a broader spectrum of readers, right down to, as you point out, the visual signifier of his skin color changing. Being different. And in his introduction, they go, oh, the wings are 12 feet, but he can comfortably hide them under a harness and a trench coat. Right. In the 60s, he can somehow fold those wings up into a harness and a trench coat and pass 100% as a normal millionaire white guy. When they become these metal death machine things growing out of his back that he can't really control, and either way, he turns blue. He goes basically from one extreme of the mutant spectrum to the other, where suddenly he is an entirely visible mutant who cannot pass. He uses an image inducer sometimes if like, he and Betsy are out and he doesn't want to get too much attention. But because he announced his status as a mutant publicly during the Champions period, for the most part, he's just like, all right, I'm blue now. Yeah. Because he has enough money that he can do that. And it's not a threat to his life at all times because he has security, he has this, he has that. But it changes the perspective enormously. I mean, I've talked about how Emma is a minority capitalist character Mm -hmm. and how it's complicated because she is this white woman exploiting the capitalist system, but she's doing it in the way that minority rich people do in real life. And the metaphor there becomes complicated. I think that with Warren, it's a similar thing. And then they also literalized it by making him visually distinct from white people who are quote unquote normal. And I think that that was smart. Yeah, with Emma, what writers had to do, and this pained me when I realized it, was they constantly had to take her kids away. Yeah. Whether they were her her students, her literal her literal eggs yeah or whether it was the future of the mutant genome yes they just had to keep taking her kids away in a move that when you reach like your 30s you go that is brutal oh my god and you don't i don't think you get it as much when you're young but it really hits me now reading back that stuff particularly that page in new x and 139 i mentioned all the time but the page where Jean makes her look at all of the dead children yeah that is just the nastiest thing around and listen Jean has every right to be mad at her but it hits below the belt in such a profound way and i think that that is similar to what they put Warren through yeah, because it happens to them on the page. And this happens to Jean too. I've talked about this sort of off pod when I'm discussing Madeline Pryor and Jean Grey. One of the things that makes them distinct characters early on when Madeline is not supposed to be a clone of Jean and is just Scott's new love interest is that Madeline has nothing. She doesn't have a family. She doesn't come from money. She's like a working class kind of person And Jean was raised by college professors and was beloved and has this whole upper middle class white 
New York upbringing. And though she has her own traumas and things, I think that it's those characters that the writers are most interested in putting through their paces on the page. Like you said, Scott has been through hellacious shit by the time he's 14, between the plane crash and the orphanage and the this and that, whereas with characters like Emma and Warren and Betsy, and to a lesser extent, Jean, who is not quite as wealthy as they are, but comes from sort of a similar class milieu, they feel the need to break them down. And with Warren, it really worked. I mean, he went from a character who was not popular. As I said last (laughs) week, Bobby and Warren were the characters who got dumped after the original X-Men run was canceled. (laughs) They pivoted Beast off to the Avengers, and then Claremont brought Jean back to X-Men and Scott had never left. So Bobby and Warren, well, and Havoc and Polaris, like Alex and Lorna kind of also got paid dust, but they weren't (laughs) original team members. Like they were not Lee Kirby characters. It is wild how much these two Lee Kirby characters were just kind of tossed to the side. What you, I mean, but Connor, if someone goes, oh, he can fly in the sixties, they go, yeah, who can't? And they go, no, 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 no. He has wings. Yeah, well, the real problem that Warren has is anything he can do, Storm can do better. (laughs) Which is why when they do Ultimate X-Men, they replace him with Storm in the original team lineup. Oh, yes. And the movies also do that. If you need someone who can fly, Storm's got it. Yeah. And you don't, and his other power is money, which Xavier already has. I'll I'll push back and say the further kind of like pseudoscience of the flight when they continue to go, oh, well, body adapted for flight. And then they go, oh, well, actually healing blood. Oh, well, actually like a minor healing factor. Well, I hate pretty much everything Chuck Austin did with Angel, except I think that the healing factor and the blood that can heal other people, while it was part of the Draco plot... <laughs> which is extraordinarily bad, (laughs) was useful as a way to give him something that Aurora doesn't have. And similarly, I think that the transformation into Archangel in the late 80s was useful because the metal bladed wings that could shoot projectile feathers gave him a Wolverine style thing that Storm doesn't have. She has energy powers. She doesn't have a physical weapon like that. And so it helped to distinguish between the two of them, because I do think that when Giant Size hits, the new characters that Ween and Cochran created sort of make most of the original X-Men irrelevant. Oh my God, yeah. You know, like Warren can fly and it's like, okay, well, Storm and Banshee and Sunfire can fly and also do other shit. Beast is kind of strong and agile. And it's like, okay, well, Nightcrawler can teleport Wolverine, super agile, and also can cut things with his adamantium claws. And Colossus just demolished a tractor, saving his sister. Colossus is way stronger than the Beast. Basically, power-wise, it shows them all up. With Storm, it's like, Storm can do everything Iceman can do, plus lightning. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know? It's always interesting when people forget she can flash freeze things. But yeah, so the issue with Warren was basically, after Giant Size, this new team is super popular. Storm in particular is wildly popular from the moment she's introduced. People can't get enough of her. Her design, like you pointed out about Archangel's blue skin and blonde hair, Storm's design with the dark brown skin and white hair is so visually striking. Her costume is beautiful. Her powers are super cool. It's the most powerful a female superhero has really ever been. This is illustrative, though, of the problem that Warren has, which is that, like, once you have Storm on the team and Xavier has money and then Moira comes in and she has money. And so, like, you don't need Warren's money and you don't need Warren's wings. What do you do with Warren? They tried the champions, which did not work. And then they tried the defenders, which also did not work, but worked a little better. Yeah. I will say, Tony and I realized after we recorded, we had the whole conversation about the human love interests and whether they do or don't work. The one that really, really, really did work was Candy Southern. And we didn't bring her up, I think because we were talking about how it can be problematic. And with Candy Southern, it never was. Candy comes in very early on in the 60s. She is one of Warren's old classmates from boarding school. They have been friends for a long time. It's clear there's kind of a flirtatious history between them. They start dating and it serves a couple purposes. First, it resolves the Scott Warren Jean love triangle. Because at the very beginning, Warren is so attractive that Jean would be lying if she was like, well. Yeah, and she's more drawn to Scott on a personality level, but Scott won't say anything flirtatious to her and Warren who is a millionaire is like (laughs) driving her around in his sports car and is so hot and is always complimenting her and it's like well of course this is going to be a triangle because even if she likes Scott more he's not doing shit because he's too nervous or shy so she's not even sure if Scott likes her like she can't read the situation and she's not telepathic yet (laughs) she can't read the situation And so Candy coming in really helps with that because Warren then is like, oh, you know, I do love Jean, but more as a friend, Candy is my girl. And then really for almost 20 years, Candy is his only love interest. And I think that they did with her. It's the only time they have really managed to make that work. Trish Tilby is the closest they came otherwise. And I think the Trish Tilby thing is very much a beauty and the beast analogy. Yes, which has its but own But Candy Southern thing. was yeah. just a very 60s name. <laughs> First of all, beautiful name. It's like Lorna Dane. Like, Candy Southern is just like, this is a cool mod chick, and it's 1964. Yeah, exactly. For those of you who are unfamiliar, because they killed her off in the 80s, Candy Southern was Warren's girlfriend from boarding school, or maybe they didn't date in boarding school, but when they meet again as like 17-year-olds or whatever in the 60s X-Men, they are instantly drawn to one another again, and they start dating. And Candy is his ride-or-die chick for the next 20 years. She runs all of his shit at Worthington Industries because he does not feel like doing it. And she is just as smart and comes from the money also and gets it. She is the one who calls the X-Men when he gets kidnapped by Callisto and the Morlocks. She is the one who, when he's on the Defenders, it's actually, I, I compared Maddie Pryor once to Sue Dibney in the sense that Maddie Pryor with the Australian X-Men becomes the same kind of, she's our human ally who sits at the base and helps us out with stuff. 
the original Marvel equivalent of that, actually, was Candy Southern. Because on the Defenders, the heroes decide, like, so that they don't have any squabbles amongst themselves of who the leader of the Defenders is, they name Candy the leader of the Defenders. And so she hangs out at the base and is the one who, like, makes decisions. Because that way, they all like Candy and Warren. Candy is the only person that <laughs> Warren will listen to without any complaints, Right. So that is fun. And in um, X-Men The Hidden Years, which was a retcon series that John Byrne did in the 90s, I want to say, maybe early aughts, I forget, which filled in the five-year gap between the cancellation in 1970 and Giant Size in 1975, Candy does a lot more adventurous stuff and at one point like puts on the Marvel Girl costume and pretends to be Marvel Girls. And it's like fun. She's a fun character. What happens to Candy is, I think however, also illustrative of the problem we were talking about. Because once the decision is made to turn Warren into Archangel, and that's in the Louise Simonson X Factor, where she introduces Apocalypse and she does the whole storyline where Warren is crucified by the Marauders in the Mutant Massacre, manipulated by his other old boarding school friend, Cameron Hodge, who we'll get into, and forced to have his wings amputated, and then essentially commits suicide, but is rescued from his suicide attempt by Apocalypse and transformed into Archangel, the Angel of Death, it's hard to see Candy fitting into that character's story anymore. So part of that transformation is first, early in X-Factor, Jean finds out about Madeline and is all freaked out about that. And she and Warren sort of feel some of their feelings from the 60s maybe emerging again a little bit. And he's comforting her and giving her a hug. And Candy walks in on them sort of in a clinch and is just furious because Candy has been doing everything for Warren for, as I said, like 15 years. And so the idea that she walks in and it's actually it's a truly fantastic scene. Candy walks in and she's just like, wow, Warren, like I have looked the other (laughs) way on your philandering before, which is hilarious because like it's so rare that they will say on panel in a comic book, this superhero cheats on his girlfriend. But she's like, I have looked the other way before because I love you, but this is too much. And like, Jean Grey, you should be ashamed of yourself. How many lives have you ruined? How many like relationships have you broken up by this point? Like, get fucked. And then she throws her briefcase at Warren's face because she was like on her way to a board meeting at Worthington Industries and just like walks out. And that is unfortunately the last time you see her until she's kidnapped by Cameron Hodge, who um, kills her. And that is like, it's a women in refrigerators moment. I mean, it's like the final, like he's already been transformed and had that whole trauma. But the thing that turns him into 90s Archangel, who's this brooding anti-hero character, is really when his best friend kills his girlfriend. And you have to remember, Cameron Hodge was a retcon character introduced in X-Factor 1. But the backstory that's established is that he was at boarding school with Warren and Candy and has been one of their friends their whole lives. So it's like literally the one person he trusted to be his best friend has now killed his girlfriend, who was also this guy's friend. They all grew up together. And he murders Hodge in retaliation, except Hodge gets better. Well, his, his wings, the wings Yeah, the wings out. do it. He's so angry that the wings cut Hodge's head off because he still can't control them. They're still dealing with the Dark Phoenix thing. And so a nice way to let Warren kill people without making it his fault, because that was their issue with Gene, was like, uh-oh, our hero did this is oops your wings did it yeah and much like phoenix the wings are warring it's so interesting because like i don't know like whenever people 
think about Archangel, they go, oh, it's really cool visually. But you have to remember dismembering people, slicing people in half, firing like neurotoxin feathers that like pierce things. That's brutalization. The rest of the X-Men are like, knock the people out, get them out right. of the way. But just it's just him and Wolverine at this point that are like, no, 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 stab things, make people bleed. Yeah. And then when Psylocke gets put in Kanon's body, she becomes a character like that as well, where she's like, here's my samurai sword. I'm going to cut people's heads off sometimes. <laughs> and it is something that leads naturally into where they end up in the aughts, where they're in the Black Ops X-Force yeah. team. Because, yeah, these are the characters you would send to do something that you don't want Storm to know about. Yeah. Warren very rapidly becomes someone who is not afraid to do that because he has nothing to lose. His his moniker is the horseman of death. Yeah, he becomes death. He has not only the capacity to kill, that's it. That's what he does now. He kills. Yes. And I mean, if you look at the other three mutants who are turned into those horsemen, Abraham Kuros was a soldier who was crippled and unable to continue to be a soldier. And Apocalypse gives him the opportunity to become war. Autumn Rolfson is an anorexic who hates food and abundance and thinks it's disgusting and it repulses her. And he gives her the opportunity to become famine. Oh, and he gives her a baby too. <laughs> well, yeah, that I don't like because she's like 14. And I think that they just forgot about that when they retconned that he had a child with her because that is not good. Yeah, I think they just really wanted to be like, how do we get this character into the 616? Like, what's a... Yeah, I just... There are so many characters you could have had him have a baby with that were not implied to be a high school student at the time. But then you also have Plague slash Pestilence. Well, that's what I was going to say. And then the, the, the third one is Plague, who is a Morlock that we've met earlier on. And she is just a nasty piece of work who lives in the sewers because she feels rejected by society and likes making people sick. She likes seeing someone like Storm who's powerful and bringing her low. And so you make her into pestilence. She's such a nasty character that she dies in that first arc because you're like, we can't have this character <laughs> running around. She's dangerous. I would like to see her pop up on Krakoa actually because she's a real wild card. When you have elixir and healer and triage, I don't think you need plague <laughs> on Krakoa. She's definitely welcome. I like when there are characters who are just annoying and there's like no good reason to keep them around but they are allowed to stay because they're mutants because like you know what that's family how many <clears throat> queer people do we not want to claim but we have oh to? goodness i will get in trouble if i say the names but no but that's what i'm saying you get what i'm saying though like plague is it's like no you don't want plague around but she's family like you can't, <laughs> you can't kick her out but yeah so much like those three characters exemplify this thing it's like well then what is it about warren that makes him death i mean that's the question right Apocalypse doesn't just pick him because he had his wings amputated. I mean, Apocalypse plays a long game. He's immortal. He chose these people for specific reasons. And so there's something in Warren that makes him able to become this. And I think in part, it's that he does come from this astonishingly privileged background where nothing really bad had ever happened to him. And as a result, he is more capable of seeing other people as less than him. Ooh, 
and is less significant than he is to the world. Their lives matter less than his does, which is a very Hellfire Club attitude, right? And it makes sense that he and Betsy are the two characters who have family memberships in the Hellfire Club. A big part of Warren and Betsy's relationship and journey in the 90s to to go back to that for a sec because it is one of my favorite things in the 90s run is their romance is they are both rich white people who have been transformed into non-white people essentially (laughs) he's literally blue so like you know your mileage may vary on how effective that is and she's now japanese suddenly and they're both sort of like huh i went through life pretty comfortable and now i'm not comfortable Plus, the traumatic experience I've had that has transformed my body has also made me really keen to kill mad people. And that's an impulse I probably should try to put a damper on. There's a great issue after Kanon as Revanche dies, where Betsy and Warren are in the cemetery talking about her and about the things that Betsy learned from her and like Betsy's regret that this has happened. In particular, they talk about how when Revanche is dying of legacy, she cuts out Betsy's bionic eyes Mm -hmm. because she's in Betsy's original body and has those bionic eyes that Mojo gave her and rips them out of her own head. She leaves them for Betsy. She's like, these are yours, which is something I always remember. And that last costume of Revanche is where she has the blindfold on because she's taken her eyes out is pretty incredible. Betsy's sort of like, I mean, maybe what Kanon has taught me is that I want to be a compassionate person. And of course, Kanon is the goddess of mercy, right? So like, that's the significance of the name. The Nisesa retcon that establishes Kanon, yeah, it's still kind of a racially messy story because it's still about a white woman who gets transformed into a Japanese woman. And the Japanese woman still has to get shuffled off the page and is not get to be a real character. So I'm glad that now that's what's happening and they're both real characters. But it also is this moment where, like, Kanon, even though she was raised as this brutal assassin and had nothing when Betsy had everything, is on some level a better person than Betsy. Because of it. Yeah, like, because she has had to fight for everything. And so when they have that clarity of who they each really are and Kanon dies, the traces of Kanon that were in Betsy's mind are removed, but Betsy is left with the knowledge that she wants to be a better person than she is. And it's an interesting switch because early in the 90s stuff, there's all these implications that the reason Betsy is being more brutal or the reason that Betsy is hitting on Scott is because like Kanon is influencing her mind. Oh. Like it's like, oh, this other woman's personality. But I think it's more that once Betsy was liberated from the expectation she's placed on herself as like Lord Braddock's daughter, her true nature sort of starts to emerge because she is a sort of darker, more seductive, more brutal, more amoral character even in the 80s. She is sort of the Emma Frost on the X-Men before Emma Frost was a good guy. I don't know. I think that for Warren, it's similar. I think that Warren has his darkest self unleashed and then his story much like hers becomes about containing it and becomes about not becoming that person and so then over the course of the 90s he starts to transform sort of back like his metal wings eventually shatter yeah and reveal that his natural wings had grown back underneath in each of these moments there is like there's a villain that helps him take a step back towards original warren Mm -hmm. it's Sabretooth, and then it's black tom yes Sabretooth shatters the metal wing Mm -hmm. and then black tom drains his life force and it turns his skin back to the 
regular color. Yeah, because he heals from the, like, the sap. Yeah. So you eventually, by the early aughts, have Warren transformed back to the way he was. But he still wants to stab things, so then he takes the the sword. It's still this nature in him that's been unlocked. You know, I have mixed feelings on a lot of the Remender stuff, but I do think that a really smart innovation was to turn Archangel into a literalization of that darker half to Warren's personality to make it like Dark Phoenix. He explicitly calls one of those stories the Dark Angel Saga. The idea that this is something that lurks in Warren and when he is pushed far enough, it will come back. And that it is in him and he will transform physically into this being because it's never truly gone. No matter how much he thinks he has processed his trauma or how much he thinks he has become the heroic angel again, that archangel darkness is inside him and he must keep a leash on it or it will come back out. That also serves the purpose from a merchandising perspective of allowing them to keep the archangel design, which is much like... Actually, there was a fan email, it's kind of a critical email, actually, about Betsy and Excalibur, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. Bruno Steerly wrote in, he and some other Betsy fans don't like Betsy as Captain Britain and all of this stuff that's going on right now, which I think is crazy as a lifelong Betsy fan. I think it's some of the best, I think it's the best Betsy stories in- Also, her as Captain Britain is, the seeds are there not only from the beginning, but very recently in the Rick Remender run. Yes, and even before that, in the issue where she gets turned into Lady Mandarin, part of the dream sequence is her complaining to Storm that Brian was chosen to be Captain Britain instead of her when she deserves it more like that's just something that's been there always so i don't understand that i mean it's just a long email so i'm not going to read the whole thing and i can't really get into the nitty-gritty because like listen my client is writing that book and i don't want to debate the merits of Excalibur, <laughs> which i think is fantastic that's the reason i work with teeny is because i loved what she was doing on the book and then read her other stuff and then called her like do you do you want to work together but he does say something One more point, Kanon deserved to exist and have her body back, absolutely. And Marvel didn't want to lose the sexy ninja character, I totally get it. But for me personally, I think the split in the divorce of both characters was not very equal. The butterfly effect was Betsy's even before the body swap. The knife came after. They should have kept Betsy with one and Kanon with the other. I get Betsy being Captain Britain again, but did Kanon really need the Psylocke codename? Psylocke was Betsy's codename already in her original body. Revanche was an amazing codename and would have fit with Kanon, in my opinion. Betsy was already a little cold and seductive in her original body, and now I feel only Conan gets all the sex appeal and confidence. I have faith these changes will be for the best, but for now I feel the character I love is losing her identity in history. And so here's what I would say to that, because I did want to address this, and I feel like it's not too off the topic of the episode, because Betsy is sort of Warren's core love interest. It's sort of Candy and Betsy are kind of the two big ones. I just don't agree. If you read Excalibur 13, you will see that when she is deprived of the Captain Britain power briefly by Saturnine, and she's like trying to express herself, the psionic butterfly signature sort of appears on the sides of her face, but not quite. And the implication for me is that when Betsy does have her butterfly effect go full blown, it's going to be significant. It's going to mean something. It's going to mean that she has integrated her past self into who Captain Britain is now. And I think there's a reason we haven't seen it yet. But I also want to say that the butterfly signature 
doesn't appear until New Mutants Annual 2 when she's moved over to the X-Men books. And it actually doesn't super become consistent until the Mutant Massacre. In the original Captain Britain stuff, she does not have that power signature. And so I think that part of what they're doing is her identity and her history, if you go really back, is in the Captain Britain books. And I understand that for 30 years, she was the X-Men Psylocke. But I think that it's important to let Betsy develop her own identity that draws on all 44 years of her publication history. And for me, her having the purple hair, being a psychic, caring about Krakoa and defining herself as a mutant above being a British subject, but still being Captain Britain is really fascinating. So the reason I brought this up now is because we were talking about Archangel. With regard to the codename Revanche, I love the codename Revanche. I would love to see one of them use it for something. Here's the thing. Revanche, first of all, people don't know how to pronounce it. Also, it is not iconic in the same way. It's just not. And I love that costume. I would love to see Kanon in that costume. But the point of Kanon being her own character is twofold. One is to resolve the racism of the original story, which I do think is very important to resolve. The other is a very cold marketing concern, which is Psylocke is the most famous Asian superhero at Marvel. She is. She became that over the course of the 90s. She was their most prominent Asian character and to a lot of people was a very important representational figure. And so, yeah, Kanon does really need the code name. If we're going to do this, we have to really do it. And yes, Psylocke was Betsy's code name first, but Betsy was not a popular character until she was the Japanese ninja. So yes, you give Kanon that code name. You give Kanon that costume. Does it make a ton of sense that Kanon would take those things? No. Is it something that makes complete sense from a marketing and branding and merchandising perspective? Yes. Am I confident that Zeb Wells is going to make that make a ton of sense as he develops Kanon further in Hellions? Also, yes. And I'm very excited to see where those two characters go after Ten of Swords. And there's like a there's a connection to Otherworld that is paramount for the narrative that they've yes. built since Excalibur, since issue one. So Captain Britain, the mantle, the title, and the importance of there being a Krakoan connection to Otherworld is way more important than any name right now the most important name is captain britain because they need that in in the excalibur book in the book titled excalibur yes and here's the thing brian braddock much as i love him and want him to like do me on it <laughs> he's not a popular character he's never been a popular character the alan moore and alan davis and jamie delano stuff in the 80s was popular in the uk because it's really fucking good but the character never took off, even in Excalibur, which was a way of trying to keep him and Megan alive as characters, was bringing in Nightcrawler and Kitty, who were two of the most popular X-Men characters. So if we're talking about what makes sense from a branding perspective, the Psylocke who looks like 90s Psylocke and can be one of Marvel's most prominent Asian characters is the Psylocke that makes sense to have. And the Captain Britain, who is Betsy Braddock, a character enormously popular in her own right, with or without a code name, is also the Captain Britain that makes the most sense. And I love the Captain Avalon twist with Brian, and I hope Brian survives Ten of Swords, because I thought Excalibur 13, speaking as someone who has loved those characters from the jump, I thought Excalibur 13 was the best story 
personality-wise, characterization-wise about Betsy and Brian in a very, very long time. It was very, it was very good. I, I was blown away at the interaction between the three siblings. It was incredible. And just from a, just from a name standpoint, I do think that Archangel versus Angel and that distinction that I give them usually just from mm-hmm. a, whether the wings have feathers or whether the wings are biometallic is a practical example of a character having dual identities. And us, when you say the name, you know who I'm talking about. And there are going to be changes to the title based on a specific set of circumstances. But you know who I'm talking about. It's, it's, less, it's less confusing than it was. It's way less confusing than it was. Here's the thing. Before people were more widely aware of that storyline, people would talk about Psylocke. And then if you were specifying, as I often was, that you preferred Psylocke before the Siege Perilous, you said British Psylocke. It was Psylocke and British Psylocke, or Psylocke and English Rose Psylocke. You only had to specify which Psylocke you were talking about if you were talking about the white one, because she wasn't as popular. She just wasn't. You know, he mentions that, like, the CBR forums get heated when a new Excalibur issues come out. First of all... I don't read forums like that because I find that they get super, super negative. And a bit misogynistic. You said it, not me. It's very easy for people. It's very easy for people to get upset. Why? That she has a sword? That she's a captain? What do you... Well, and people get annoyed that, like, that Captain Britain isn't, like, her own identity and Psylocke was. Psylocke is a name Mojo gave her. So, like, let's not get too precious about the code names, frankly. She's always made the best of mantles that other people have placed upon her. That's her whole deal. I also think people are harsher on female writers. I just do. I can assure you, if you're concerned at all that Teeny Howard doesn't know who Betsy Braddock is, you lost your goddamn mind. Because I have talked to Teeny Howard about Betsy Braddock for <laughs> hours and hours on end, and I can tell you, outside of myself, and probably that one person who runs the Psylocke Like a Butterfly website, which is the most comprehensive Psylocke website and has been for like 20 years, Teeny knows more about Psylocke than anyone else I have ever met, probably more than me at this point, because she has read everything. I understand that if you are a Betsy fan who is very attached to her as Psylocke, which makes sense, like Outback Psylocke is my favorite Psylocke. I would love if she had just gone back to that situation. But I also think that the confusion of who Psylocke is to fans is so vast at this point and that there is a lot more history, if we want to talk about history and identity, of Psylocke being the Asian X-Men character. And so I think that what they're doing with Kanon is really smart. Yeah, because I mean, if it's not her, it's Karma? Right, or Jubilee. And it's like, I'm sorry. Or Jubilee, you're right, yeah. Jubilee is a character who was somewhat popular because of the TV show, but also a character who was very polarizing. A lot of people thought of her as like Scrappy-Doo. But I do think that as she's developed, she's become a more nuanced character. Unlike, unfortunately, because I think she has a lot of potential, her Gen X teammate Husk to get back to Warren's love interest. We're going back to... I actually think that's a really good moment to stop for the character file because that's an arc that I probably need to explain for the listeners who didn't (laughs) read it before we get there. So we're going to launch into the character file on Warren Worthington III. And when we're done, we will come right back here to talk about, well, what else? Chuck Austin's Uncanny X-Men. X-Men, X-Men. Warren Kenneth Worthington III, known variously as Angel or Archangel and briefly as Death, is an original X-Man and a character whose many transformations have helped him endure in the popular imagination for 57 years. 
Introduced in September 1963's X-Men No. 1 by Stanley and Jack Kirby, he's the looker of the team, a wealthy playboy whose angelic appearance is made complete by the beautiful white wings on his back. Over the years, brutal traumas have changed him at times into a razor-sharp messenger of doom. In the 60s stories, Warren primarily serves as a foil for Scott Summers, the team's field leader Cyclops, who's too shy to make a move on their teammate Jean Grey, codenamed Marvel Girl. Angel is a confident ladies' man with no such hesitations, but it becomes clear that Jean has feelings for Scott, and Warren steps out of the way to begin dating an old friend from his Beaumont past, the socialite Candy Southern. Warren's history is first revealed in backup stories from X-Men 54 to 56, in which the reader learns that he grew up extravagantly wealthy in Centerport, New York. Fond of dizzying heights from an early age, he's a star student and athlete at a posh boarding school when he suddenly grows bird-like wings. Advised by the family doctor to keep his mutation a secret, even from his parents, he does his best to hide his growing wings until he discovers he can fly, donning an angelic disguise with a wig and a nightshirt to rescue his classmates from a fire in their dormitory. This incident inspires him to become a superhero called the Avenging Angel, acting solo for a brief period until he is recruited to join the X-Men by Professor Xavier. After the Professor's apparent death in X-Men 42, which prompts the X-Men to disband, Warren continues to operate as the Angel and continues to date Candy Southern. While he's out on a date with Candy in 1966's Marvel Tales 30, a supervillain called the Dazzler, no relation to future X-Men Allison Blair, has Warren's father murdered. The Dazzler kidnaps Candy to force Warren to cooperate, and it's revealed that the villain is none other than Warren's uncle, Bertram Worthington, who has been using Worthington Industries to secretly smuggle diamonds. Candy discovers Warren's secret in the ensuing battle, and the Dazzler is apparently killed. After he's framed for the crimes of the pterodactyl supervillain Sauron, don't worry about it, Warren is lost in the Savage Land, where he falls under the influence of the Creator, a seemingly benevolent leader. But the Creator is actually Magneto, the X-Men's archenemy, who has temporarily lost his mutant powers. He later uses a special costume to drain Warren's mutagenic energies and restore himself. With the help of the Avengers, because the X-Men title had been cancelled, the other X-Men rescue Warren. In 1975, Marvel decided to relaunch the unpopular X-Men title with an overhaul of the team. Angel and the other 60s X-Men are captured by the living island Krakoa in Giant Size X-Men No. 1 by writer Len Wein and artist Dave Cockrum. Their leader Cyclops rescues them with the help of a new team of X-Men, and after this adventure, Warren decides to retire from superheroics and try living a normal life. In the short-lived new series The Champions, he begins college in Los Angeles, and also publicly declares himself as a mutant after, orphaned by the death of his mother, he inherits Worthington Industries. An unexpected adventure with the Olympian god Hercules compels Warren and fellow retired X-Men Iceman to form a new supergroup called The Champions. The group doesn't last long, however, and their book was canceled with issue 17. Warren moves with Candy Southern to a new home in the Colorado mountains called Angel's Airy. During the Dark Phoenix saga, he helps the X-Men infiltrate the Hellfire Club, as he inherited membership from his late father. After the death of Phoenix, when Cyclops retires from the team, Angel rejoins the group to replace him. He doesn't fit in with his new teammates, however, and after a number of disagreements with Wolverine, he leaves the X-Men once again. In 1983's Uncanny X-Men 169, Warren and Candy are attacked in their New York City penthouse apartment by the tunnel-dwelling mutants called the Morlocks, who kidnap Warren and bring him to their leader, Callisto. Callisto, who believes herself hideous, is enraptured by Warren's beauty, and she's intent on forcing the Angel to marry her. The X-Men's new leader, Storm, defeats Callisto in combat and secures Warren's freedom. 
Soon afterward, Warren makes another attempt at starting his own super team with Iceman, this time joined by their former classmate the Beast and the heroes Moondragon, Valkyrie, and Gargoyle. This group, the Defenders, establishes its base of operations at Angel's Eyrie, and to avoid superpowered squabbling, the team declares that Candy Southern will be their leader and business manager. The Defenders was canceled three years later in 1986, and all the Defenders save Iceman, Angel, and Beast are killed. The three original X-Men quickly join their old teammates Cyclops and Marvel Girl in the new book X-Factor, initially written by Bob Layton but quickly taken over by Louise Simonson. As X-Factor, the original X-Men pose as a freelance mutant apprehending service, while secretly also operating as the mutant vigilantes the Exterminators and training the mutants X-Factor takes into custody. Much as Candy once led the Defenders, X-Factor is coordinated by the newly introduced character Cameron Hodge, Warren's best friend from boarding school. It's Cameron and Warren who come up with the idea for X-Factor, though Warren doesn't realize just how much Cameron's ideas are superseding his own judgment. Candy, meanwhile, begins essentially running Worthington Industries, as Warren is distracted by his new project. Overworked and exhausted by Warren's wandering eye, Candy eventually discovers Warren and Jean Grey in an affectionate embrace, and dumps Warren on the spot. This leaves Cameron as Warren's only confidant, and the X-Factor pretense, which at first seems clever, quickly begins escalating the exact human mutant tensions the group hoped to help fight. Secretly, Cameron Hodge is an anti-mutant extremist, and he is using X-Factor to stoke fear and hatred of mutant kind. In X-Factor 11, part of the mutant massacre event, Warren is attacked by the Marauders. Harpoon uses his eponymous weapons to hang the angel on the wall of the sewers, his wings impaled. Warren's eventually rescued by the Avenger Thor, but the damage to his wings has been extensive, and he is hospitalized. Cameron Hodge, bent on ruining his life and seizing his assets to fund anti-mutant terrorism, plants false documentation that makes doctors believe Warren's wings must be amputated. When Warren wakes without them, he becomes suicidal. Escaping from the hospital, he decides to fly his helicopter one last time, apparently intent on killing himself. A bomb set by Hodge ensures he succeeds, and the helicopter explodes. A few months later, in the franchise-wide event Fall of the Mutants, it is revealed that the ancient immortal mutant Apocalypse rescued Warren from the explosion. Experimenting on him and altering his DNA, Apocalypse brainwashes Warren into becoming his fourth and final horseman, the Horseman of Death, sporting a new pair of razor-sharp biometallic wings and a new blue skin tone. Death battles his former comrades in X-Factor, but is brought back to his senses when he destroys a decoy created by Iceman, believing he has genuinely murdered his friend. Refusing to rejoin X-Factor, Death instead embarks on a mission to kill Cameron Hodge. In their final battle, Hodge murders Candy Southern, whom he had kidnapped some time ago. Warren, driven to pure rage, decapitates Hodge with his razor wings. Rejoining X-Factor and taking the new codename Archangel, Warren tries to adjust to his new life and to his new wings that seem to have a mind of their own and react violently to his emotional state. After he rescues policewoman Charlotte Jones from a cult of empathic superbeings, they briefly date. Things begin to settle down until the 1991 event Extinction Agenda, in which Warren discovers that Cameron Hodge is alive. It's revealed that Hodge struck a bargain with the demon Nastir during the 1989 event Inferno, and is now immortal. Living as a severed head on a robot body, Hodge takes over the government of the anti-mutant apartheid state Genosha and faces off against Warren again. Though he cannot be killed, Hodge is seemingly trapped forever by X-Factor's young student Richter, who topples a building onto his once again decapitated head. In the subsequent 1991 relaunch of the X-Men, the X-Men and X-Factor teams combine once more into one group, with Cyclops leading one squad, the Blue Team, and Storm leading the other, the Gold Team. 
Warren is assigned to the Gold Team and becomes a regular cast member in Uncanny X-Men. In 1993's Uncanny X-Men 306, on the first anniversary of Candy Southern's murder, Warren and Jean visit Angel's Airy in Colorado, where they are shocked to discover Candy alive. The group is quickly attacked by Cameron Hodge, and it is revealed that both Cameron and Candy have had their brainwaves assimilated into the techno-organic alien race called the Phalanx. After finding closure with Warren, the Phalanx Candy sacrifices herself to stop Hodge's plans. After a mission at the Hellfire Club, to which they both belong thanks to family ties, Archangel begins dating fellow X-Man Betsy Braddock, codenamed Psylocke. Betsy is also coping with the non-consensual transformation of her body, as the other-dimensional sorceress Spiral has switched her mind with the mind of a Japanese assassin. Warren and Betsy understand one another, and become a couple for the rest of the 90s. When Betsy's nearly killed by Sabretooth, Warren journeys to the mystical dimension called the Crimson Dawn to restore her. The Betsy who awakens, however, is colder and harsher, and their relationship becomes strained. Over time, Warren's metal razor wings, cracked in battle with Sabretooth, begin to shatter, revealing that his feathered wings have grown back beneath the biometal. Then there's a whole thing where Apocalypse turns Wolverine into his new horseman of death. Don't worry about it. In the 1999 flashback book X-Men The Hidden Years by John Byrne, which fills in the five-year gap between the original X-Men title's cancellation in 1970 and Giant Size X-Men number 1 in 1975, new retroactive continuity further explores Warren's relationship with Candy Southern, who takes a more active role in the X-Men's adventures. In this series, Warren's uncle Bertram, the supervillain Dazzler, returns from his apparent death, seducing Warren's mother Catherine and seizing control of the Worthington fortune. The X-Men foil his plans, but he has already poisoned Catherine, who dies in Warren's arms. This leads into the 1975 Champions storyline, where Warren inherits the family fortune and reveals his identity to the public. Back in the present, Betsy is serving with the X-Men full-time, while Warren serves part-time and mostly focuses on Worthington Industries. Their relationship further decays, especially after Betsy finds herself attracted to new teammate Neil Shara, codenamed Thunderbird. Warren decides to end the relationship, but is devastated when Betsy is killed a few months later in a sword fight with the supervillain Vargas. Sponsoring a new squad of X-Men which he co-leads with Nightcrawler, Warren finds his natural skin color restored after a battle with Black Tom Cassidy triggers an apparent secondary mutation a healing factor. He soon discovers that his blood also has the capacity to heal other people, so long as they share his blood type. After embarking on a romantic relationship with his much younger new teammate Husk, little sister of the X-Men Cannonball, Warren retires from active duty once more to focus on his businesses and charitable foundations. After the 2005 company-wide event House of M leads to the decimation, in which nearly all mutants on Earth are depowered, Warren links up with an ex-girlfriend, investigative journalist Sally Floyd. Sally's interviewing depowered mutants and accidentally draws the attention of a serial killer preying on the decimated. Using an image inducer, Warren pretends he has been depowered and offers himself as bait so the X-Men can stop the killer. Then comes World War Hulk. You can Google that if you want. When Cyclops begins operating his new Black Ops wetwork squad, X-Force, out of the abandoned Angel's Airy, Warren discovers the team and insists on helping them rescue captured squad member Wolfsbane. Unfortunately, Wolfsbane has been brainwashed by the Purifiers, and when she sees Warren, she tears his wings off with her bare hands. Apocalypse's dormant technology is activated, and Warren once again transforms into the blue-skinned Archangel, with new biometal razor wings sprouting from his back. It quickly becomes evident that Warren now transforms uncontrollably between Angel and Archangel forms, and as Archangel, he has an unquenchable thirst for violence. To protect the X-Men, and himself, Warren remains at the area and begins serving with X-Force, keeping his new transformation a secret. 
In 2008's Uncanny X-Men 504, Warren decides to help Beast in his attempts to cure the decimation by bringing together the world's finest mutant minds in a new scientific organization called X-Club. He continues to serve with X-Force and slowly begins to develop better control over his archangel form. In the 2010 event Second Coming, the secret existence of X-Force is exposed, and Cyclops disbands the squad. Unwilling to give up the work and sensing that Apocalypse will soon rise again, Warren joins forces with his X-Force teammate Wolverine to form a new iteration of the group, recruiting his ex-girlfriend Psylocke, who has in the time since been restored to life, don't worry about it, to the team. In this new title, Uncanny X-Force under writer Rick Remender, Betsy uses her telepathic powers to help Warren control his archangel personality, though she's unable to eliminate it. When the team discovers Apocalypse has indeed been reborn, as a ten-year-old, Archangel and Psylocke come to blows when she refuses to let him murder the child. Warren triumphs, but finds himself unable to actually do the deed. He agrees with Betsy that they'll attempt to rehabilitate the boy instead, but their teammate Phantom X, who has no such moral qualms, executes the child with a bullet to the head. In the storyline The Dark Angel Saga, the Archangel persona slowly begins corrupting Warren, and he refuses to let Betsy back into his head. In truth, the celestial death seed energies within him are transforming him into Apocalypse's successor. Archangel gathers horsemen of his own and sets out to reshape the world according to Apocalypse's vision. He transforms Betsy into the new Horseman of Death. After she's captured and restored by the X-Men, she uses a celestial life seed to kill Archangel. Warren's personality re-emerges as he dies in Betsy's arms, and she uses her telepathy to let him experience a full lifetime together with her as a happy couple. The life seed resurrects Warren, but with no memories. He's left a naive, innocent blank slate and begins a new life at the Jean Grey School for Higher Learning. There he befriends Evan Sabaner, a clone of Apocalypse made from the cells of the child Phantom X murdered. Pretty much nothing in this period is anything you need to know about. In the 2013 relaunch All New X-Men by writer Brian Michael Bendis, Beast pulls teenage versions of the five original X-Men forward in time to the present, hoping to show Cyclops how far he has fallen from the ideals he held as a teenager. The teenage version of Warren is disturbed to discover his adult self is a simple amnesiac. Teen Warren dates X-23, gets some weird fire wings from an alien vortex, don't worry about it, and ultimately returns to the past as though nothing ever happened. After some Inhumans vs. X-Men stuff we're not going to talk about, Angel merges with his dormant Archangel persona and has his memories and personality as Warren Worthington restored. He's once again able to switch between forms at will, and his control over his Archangel persona begins to improve. After the 2019 franchise-wide soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by Jonathan Hickman, Warren moves to the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. While he doesn't take on an official role in the country's leadership, though Apocalypse does, which concerns him, he collaborates with fellow wealthy mutant Monet St. Croix and Emma Frost's Hellfire Trading Company to secure mutant kind's future in the free market. Though his world has been turned upside down once again, Warren has apparently made a breakthrough, achieving complete control of his archangel form. X-Men, X-Men. To get back to where we were when we left, we were talking about Paige Guthrie. Um, Ugh, very young Paige Guthrie. Yeah, so the Gen X characters after Gen X is canceled in 2001, some of them just age up real fast. Like Monet jumps to X-Factor Investigations and is clearly like in her 20s. Yeah, and in her own womanhood. Yeah, like, Monet has grown immediately so that she can be sort of a peer to Siren and Wolfsbane and those characters age-wise. By the same token, Husk 
get suddenly aged up to like roughly 18, 19. Yeah, because she's still younger than Sam. She has to be younger than Sam is the thing. Older than Melody and Jay. Right. So Betsy and Warren had broken up. Basically, after Betsy connects with the Crimson Dawn, her personality gets kind of cold and more vicious. And then he gets really caught up in like Worthington Industries stuff and their relationship kind of gets strained. And then she has this new teammate, Neil Shara. Thunderbird 3. Thunderbird 3, who's called Thunderbird just for like a not that kind of Indian joke. He does have plasma power, so they attempt to make it make sense, but it is so... There's nothing in Hindu lore about a Thunderbird. Like, it's just a, it's just a joke. Well, yeah, I'm gonna also say this. Do better with Desi characters. Indra was treated correctly, but when I thought about Thunderbird, I was like, there's also a character in Marvel called Vindaloo, who was an acolyte mm. who had heat-based powers... And he was Desi, and that's the first thing they could... So, yeah, just, you're right. You know who I actually thought was a really good Desi character, although she was messy in, like, a lot of ways, but is Haven. Do you remember Haven? Oh. Radha Dastor. It wasn't really a plot point that she was Desi. She just happened to be from that region. But, like, she's the one who was a cult leader because she had a mutant fetus that had never fully developed. Yes. And it gave her powers. She was really cool. Wow, yeah. She was a very 90s character, but I feel like they could do interesting stuff with her now, especially with the global Krakoa kind of stuff if they brought her back. Yeah, it's complicated. So anyway, um, no, I agree. I think they should bring back Neil Shara with a new code name. Yeah, pull a gray crow. Pull a gray crow. Yeah, pull a gray crow. Come up with something a little less racially weird. Like, listen, if you turn Neil Shara into like a Sendal Ramamurthy type like hunk, there would be a lot of people who'd be into that character. Oh, yeah. And Karima Shapandar, Omega Sentinel, has become an important character again. Yes. With her heel turn to Orcus. And honestly, I'm sure we're going to get more stuff on that. So it would be cool to have Neil in the mix because their backstory is that she was his girlfriend who got turned into the Omega Sentinel. So I feel like we should do something about it. I mean, the point is, Neil was this new character that Claremont introduced when he came back to the book in 2000 and betsy is really into neil because neil is hot eventually like she's flirting with neil in front of warren and warren is finally just like listen this isn't working i think we should take a break like i want you to be happy go do your thing and then like literally two months later betsy gets killed in extreme x-men and warren is totally devastated because he's like if i hadn't given up and i had fought for her more and i had for our relationship maybe i could have been there and saved her yeah if she wasn't looking for the destiny diaries yeah like if she hadn't gone to a duel with this vargas character <laughs> that nobody gives a shit about without me maybe she'd be alive he's really fucked up about it and that's what precipitates him coming back to the x-men full time because he had been sort of part-timing it for a while and he's still blue at that time shortly after rejoining the team is when he gets turned back to his regular skin color and so you then have this warren who has feathery wings and regular skin color who is sort of back to the guy he used to be except he's been through all the trauma of archangel and he's now lost betsy who was the only person who kept him sane through that whole period he ends up rejoining the X-Men and has this very weird love triangle with Stacy X and Huss. And Stacy X as a character, as sex, as a person who can manipulate pheromones, as an ex-sex worker, you go, okay, this is the sexy part 
of Warren's Playboy eyes. Right. And then you go, oh, this is the girl next door, Husk. That's Husk, right. She's the girl next door. It's a very Madonna whore, like literally the Madonna whore complex kind of thing. Right down to Husk being so young that like you could read her as a virgin if you wanted to. Yeah. The way Stacey X is introduced is that Warren finds out that Worthington Industries, someone is embezzling, I think, or like some shell company or something is being used to fund a brothel called X Ranch with mutant sex workers. And Stacy is one of them. And then the brothel gets attacked and Stacy's the only one who survives. And so she just kind of tags along with the X-Men and is like, I'm an X-Man now. And they're like, are you though? <laughs> Stacy is also a visible mutant. She has scales. Like she's not able to pass. She's a Morlock type X-Man or like Nightcrawler or one of those. Yeah. Warren is not into Stacy X. Warren thinks Stacy is too much. She's beyond even Ninja Psylocke in terms of, like, in-your-face sexuality. It's too déclassé for him, is really what it is. Like, she's not classy enough. He likes Candy Southern. He likes Betsy Braddock. He likes Jean Grey. He likes these women who are from upper-middle-class or wealthy backgrounds who can get a little dirty, but he doesn't want to date a sex worker from the streets. He just doesn't want to do that. And Husk is someone he also is resistant about dating because she's so much younger than him. And this is the first, this is one of the few times where from a writing standpoint, the writer was like, no, 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 we want you to question the age gap here. We want everyone to be like, what? I don't know. I mean, Chuck Loss is just a curious guy. I would love a glimpse in his head because yeah, they officially say on page, like she's on page, no pun intended. Warren, Warren <laughs> certainly gets on page. She has a crush on him, and she is, at the oldest, 18, 19. A cru and a crush is a very important distinction between there being a mutual attraction yeah, between and adults. Yeah, and he is very like, don't stand so close to me about it, like, at first. <laughs> first of all, he knows Sam. This is Sam's younger sister. And Sam is already younger than Warren, considerably. So it's just one of those things where I never bought this relationship. It never made sense to me from Warren's perspective. I completely understood why Paige would be into, she's just joined the X-Men. She's become like a full member of the team. And he's the team leader at that moment on that squad. And he's this older, incredibly handsome, wealthy. I mean, the same way that I felt my stomach drop the first time I saw that splash <laughs> page in the Dark Phoenix saga. It makes total sense that you would have a crush on Warren Worthington. What I didn't buy was him reciprocating it. And I especially didn't buy him reciprocating it in a way where we were supposed to find it romantic and sweet. Post Morrison, new X-Men run. A lot of people go, well, what is this? And I go, I don't know, but don't get mad at me. I'm just telling you what happened. <laughs> <laughs> right, I am just relating to you the plot that occurred. The Draco is is very important for the mythology of mutants from a Cherifin standpoint for Angel. <sighs> I know. If we look at Jay Guthrie's mutation, who has a healing factor and has wings. I glossed over this in the character file to some extent, but yes, in the Draco, it is established that Nightcrawler's demonic mutant subrace is called the Nephilim, like the Nephilim from the Bible. And when Angel develops his secondary mutation of healing blood, there's another subgroup that was the rivals of the Nephilim, the Chearifim, like the Cherubim, who were angelic in appearance and had healing powers and are believed to be extinct. But the Nephilim are 
sort of struck by Warren because he seems like he is one. And then in She Lies with Angels, we see that Sam and Paige's younger brother, Jay Guthrie, has manifested mutant powers and he also has wings and a healing factor. And the implication is that he also has some of that ancient bloodline. It doesn't really make any sense. And so they have not done a ton with it since because it was just weird. But then you get the weird mirror of like, you're, if your brother and your current boyfriend are, have right? such it's like, similar power sets. Also, if it's a bloodline, the implication is that Paige and Angel are related at least a little bit. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird like thing to put in and to like hold fast to well this is why i'm saying again they've just never said it again like no other writer is interested (laughs) in it because it's stupid well i think it's because the minute you talk about like ancient mutants apocalypse is gonna be like what'd you say yeah the real problem (laughs) the real real big problem with it is that austin just doesn't world build that in a way that's consistent with apocalypse and selene as someone who is a big dork about all of this continuity, I can tell you all about Apocalypse and Selene and like Selene's history over the last 17,000 years that she's been alive. It just doesn't fit. Like these characters don't really fit. And so Azazel is a problem. When they brought him back in Amazing X-Men with the Nightcrawler in Heaven stuff, it was not bad, but I just prefer to ignore the that character and the Nephiam Cherokee thing ever existed. And certainly for Warren, it doesn't fit. It just doesn't work because... Because it reduces him to like a kind of just type of mutant. And that's also what I felt about the Kurt thing. I mean, I think it really undermines both characters, in my opinion. And I mean, I think there's a reason Jay got killed off pretty quickly. Yeah, well, you hate the Academy X I don't kids, hate so them. I don't hate them. I'm just saying, um... no, actually, part of why... <laughs> I just decided not to care about them was that they were constantly killing them all off. I was just like, I don't want to. Another example of writers taking away Emma's babies. Yes, that part I cared about because it upset her and she, I cared about her. So you have Warren in this relationship with Husk. And then the most kind of like grotesque scene is the derobing the, the midair coitus. They fuck in the sky and her mom watches. Yes. (laughs) clothing falls down wolverine or nightcrawler catch it in the panel and mrs mama guthrie kind of turns her head and is like oh my it's real bizarre and i don't care for it now do i buy that someone like warren would date like a 19 year old if he was having an existential crisis yes that does make sense to me but the way that we were supposed to buy into it as a real relationship or a real romance, I just didn't buy. Because he's like 30. He's been dating Psylocke, who's like also 30. And it just doesn't, it doesn't scan for me. Oh, you know, we didn't mention Charlotte Jones. Ooh. Uh, Another human character he dates briefly. She's an African-American police detective. And they were pretty hot together. But I think that much like with Obal Tanaka and with Trish Tilby, other human characters... They found it hard to find ways to fit Charlotte into the narrative. That was like late 80s, early 90s, and they just sort of pivoted him to dating Betsy instead. But I would love to see Charlotte pop back up at some point. She was fun. Ooh, if, yeah, if Charlotte is a point of contact for the Marauders. Yeah, like the Marauders are like need to liaise with the NYPD or something, and they talk to Charlotte. Or the African-American character with wings in, do you know where I'm headed with this? that is modeled after Warren 
in the book that we think will eventually come out. Oh, the Children of the Atom book. The Children of the Atom. What if that's Charlotte's kid? That would be... That's what I'm saying. That would be awesome. Well, that book's already written, so I don't know. He has like light construct wings. Well, it wouldn't be Warren's child, but it could be but it could be Charlotte's child who's inspired by Warren because didn't she have that kid when they were dating? Yes, yes. There was a son. She was a single mother. Oh man, I hope you're right. That would be great. That would be great. I mean, I would love to see Charlotte as like a Renee Montoya type character. Just one of those points of contact for the superheroes. Oh yeah. Listen, they brought back Congresswoman Stevie Hunter, so the sky is the <laughs> limit. But yeah, so Charlotte Jones was fun. Shout out to Charlotte Jones. And an interracial relationship in the comic books between a very blonde, very, very white man. The whitest of the X-Men dating a black woman who had natural hair and was like a dark-skinned woman, I think was pretty significant, actually. Yeah. yeah. And then they, they hooked him up with Betsy, who was at the time Japanese. It was made clear in the 90s that, like, Warren is open to all ethnicities on his dating app. (laughs) Which, again, though, I think is sort of like what I said Claremont does with the German characters, where he always is like, and here's their Jewish or Romany friend. Mm -hmm. I I think that with both Warren and Emma, there is an attempt made to underline that even though they are rich white people from this very she-she upper-class background, that they are not racist. You know what I mean? Yeah, and if you're a white writer... I feel like taking steps to do that, while some people are going to say, oh, it's a bit ham-fisted and heavy-handed, you have to do it. If the book is about them being part of this minority group, yeah, you have to stress that like, while they have this privilege, they might have blind spots, but they're not bigots. You know what I mean? Yeah, I even think that like during the Empire X-Men tie-in, the sexual chemistry between Warren and Monet and Monet. I loved that. If there's any Gen X or Warren should be dating, it's Monet. I love Monet. God, I love Monet. And now Monet is like definitely like 25-ish. So they should definitely maybe explore that. So what you were saying was... He was, he went back to character limbo. Yeah. He went back to character limbo. At one point they're chasing down acolytes and he's like responsible for catching people. And like Warren, who is fast and can fly and is strong and tall and handsome, he has trouble catching Neophyte. Like Neophyte's like, I'm just gonna phase into and out of stuff. You're not gonna catch me. Nightcrawler has to catch him. And so you have Messiah Complex and you have the establishment of a new iteration of a Wetworks team in X-Force that comes after Caliban gets shot. Mm-hmm. And so you have a team of trackers. And so Scott keeps this team and the team needs a place to stay. And they stay in Colorado. At Warren's Angel's Airy. At the Airy. But without him. Without him. Because not being used. So Scott's just like, here's a base that's not being used at the moment without asking Warren, which I think is hilarious. That I'm gonna put my new kill division in. Yeah, my Black Ops squad. Yeah, Black Ops squad made up of Rank Sinclair, Warpath, Wolverine. And so just people that can kill and that will kill. Mm-hmm. Rain Sinclair is manipulated by not only her father, but the purifiers. And she in something that I never thought was gonna happen. Oh, and I'm talking to you, Craig Kyle. In 2008, she rips Angel's wings off again. So Angel basically clocks that someone is in his house and like shows up 
and insists to be allowed to chill with X-Force. And Rain has been, as Jay notes, brainwashed essentially by the purifiers and her father, Reverend Craig, who's an old school bigot from the 80s stuff, to become like a sleeper agent for the purifiers who are a mutant-hating organization. And she rips Warren's wings right off his back. In a bit of graphic violence and on-the-page trauma, a visual mutilation that you can't do with people unless they have extra appendages. Right. And so we're talking about a character that has literally been through this before. Before! But then one of the twists that happens out of this is we realize because of the celestial technology that his wings grow back in the biometallic form and that because of Apocalypse's gene modification and the combination of his healing factor, we assume, he grows his metal wings back and becomes the angel of death once again. And so we have the reintroduction of the Archangel character, which we've tried to like scrub away. We crack the wings, the feather wings were underneath and we took away the blue skin and it all comes back in 2008. What's interesting is the metal wings only cracked in 1996 and he's still blue until like 2002 or something. And so it's a very short period that he's turned back into classic angel because I think they realized, because as you said, he immediately falls into character limbo. They realized that the toy that everyone bought in the 90s and the character that (laughs) 90s kids like is Archangel. They had to find a way to bring that back. And so what they do in X-Force, what Remender does in X-Force is is in that sense very clever, especially when they create the innovation of him being able to switch back and forth, which is similarly to bring back Monet, something very intelligent that Jonathan Hickman just did with Monet, which is giving her the ability to become penance if a situation becomes really nasty. Yes. Oh, when that that reveal happened? Made her about 10 times cooler and she was already pretty fucking cool. So (laughs) it was also very cute to see two tiny penances running around. That was adorable. (laughs) I loved the little penances. I think that this character becoming closer to the Incredible Hulk, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Mr. Hyde, Mm -hmm. in that mythology of characters is so smart because putting him on this Wetworks division team with that first iteration of X-Force, they go, okay, this is, we're going to give Warren permission. To kill. He's never had it. Never. Let your worst instincts out. The stuff you spent the whole 90s repressing, why don't you just do it? And then they bring Betsy onto the team. Oh, with volume two. Yeah. I would like reread that Uncanny X-Force run. I would go, oh my God, this is so beautiful, but poisonous. She was responsible for caging the demon that was Archangel psychologically. Very much in like a saber tooth birdie glow relationship. Yeah. Where she had to sedate Love that. That's him. a pull. Yeah, yeah. Someone played the video games. <laughs> Someone played this. Birdie! Yeah, boys! <laughs> Birdie was a character who served a similar purpose for uh, Sabretooth in the 90s. It didn't end well for her. It becomes a Beauty and the Beast thing. Yeah. Except that she's also kind of a beast. Because she's a murderer now in a way that they have a secret. They have a secret. They both are indulging the darker impulses they were trying to fight in the 90s, and they have to keep it secret from all their friends. In the final execution arc, you see that they have to murder a child. And Betsy won't let them do it, but Warren... And Warren, Warren 
he flinches. Phantom X doesn't, which... Well, obviously. <laughs> Here's the thing. It, it is a question of, like, what would compel Warren to be okay with murdering a child and it's that that child is Apocalypse. Yeah. Like, that's where you have to go with it. And that Betsy, even if the child is Apocalypse, and this goes back to Betsy's characterization in the 80s Captain Britain, where she refused to let anyone hurt the Warpies after Jasper's war. Betsy is like a, not someone who wants to be a mom, but she is someone who's very protective of children. Yes. She protected the Warpies. She tries to protect this child Apocalypse. And in Excalibur, Teenie Howard had her protect the werewolf cub from Apocalypse because she was like, yes. you know, this, this thing is innocent. And Betsy, as someone who feels she has lost her innocence, is very protective of things that she believes to be innocent, even if they have a darker nature. Because I guess she wishes someone had protected her when she was an innocent thing with a darker nature. And we get to see kind of a f this the darkest you'll ever see Warren Kenneth Warrington the third is in that run of Uncanny Exports by Rick Remeter mm -hmm. with some amazing with some amazing art by Jerome Pena. And like what happens is you realize that he is the heir to Apocalypse. There's no Apocalypse other than Evan at this point in kind of like the X-Men world. And Evan, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what they do with him, but it seems like they're just sort of quietly not using that character. Yeah, because he's a clone. What's the rule? What's the rule? Isn't little Gabby or whatever on Krakoa too? Yeah. Like she's a clone. We got to figure this shit out. It's starting to feel more and more like the fix was in on Maddie Pryor. Oh, because there's also, I mean, if you, when you listen to this, it's a two week old spoiler when you listen to it, but there's, there might be a clone farm on Krakoa. Right. Sinister's got clones going. So don't count anybody out just yet. So I have mixed feelings about the Dark Angel saga. I really like Warren as Apocalypse's heir because Apocalypse is big on legacy and creating what, like he does it with strife. Yeah. And we got that. We got seeds of that in Messiah War when he gives mm -hmm. him the feathers and he says, yes, get, OK, we'll get better. Their relationship is always very interesting. And I think that that was a cool idea. I didn't care for all of the stuff with the new pestilence and <laughs> oh my the apocalypse God. twins wow. and all that stuff. Like, wow, I would wow, prefer, wow, wow, that's, wow. That's a little Azazel-esque to me in that I would like to kind of shove that down the memory hole a little bit. But I do think that the Warren and Betsy stuff in that is pretty flawless. The problem is the way it ends with Betsy killing him is incredible and I think that it would hit a lot harder if he actually died. Yeah. Instead, they do the thing where he's reborn with no memories. Which I, I'm Connor, we talked about this privately. I agree with you so much because he's, he's turned into an infant. Yeah. Like the character is so not interesting to me at all for the next, and it's like a long time. And we have to also admit that why did we, we regress to a teenage kind of amnesia riddled angel when we were about to get, thanks to Bendis, another teenage. Well, I don't think they knew that. I don't think they knew that. But it is one of the weirdest things about that is that like adult Jean is dead. So teen Jean doesn't get to interact with Jean and she has to instead interact with <laughs> Emma and Kitty and like get a sense of who Jean was, right? But- you have lots of stuff where it's like teen Bobby is stressed out because adult Bobby is in the closet. Yeah. Teen Hank is stressed out because adult Hank is a furry monster. Adult Hank is also 
a person who is it's it's so mind-boggling to me that whenever we get into Hank McCoy, people don't realize that his narcissism is I mean, I think the way Ben Percy is writing him on X-Force yes. right now is woof. I mean, like in a good way. Like, but I'm not if I were a beast fan, I might be upset, but I feel like if you're still an earnest beast fan who wants him to be a good person in the year 2020, you're in oh, yeah. trouble. Because it's been a minute since Beast was a guy with a clear moral eye, let's say. <laughs> and Scott, obviously teen Scott, sees that adult Scott has become a terrorist. Yeah. So there is all of that for them. And all Warren gets, and this is why I think that teen Warren has the least interesting journey of those time-traveling teens, because adult Warren doesn't yes. exist. Yes. And he's not dead. It's not like Gene, where everyone's like, oh, and this is what Warren was like. He exists, but his personality and identity have been erased. And that's distressing for Team Warren to see that that's like the fate that awaits him. But it means they can't have any interesting conversation. And he he asking him, what happened to my wings? Why are your wings like this? Because he has the metal wings, permanent metal wings, but yeah. normal, but white skin, longer blonde hair post-schism but also like during avengers versus x-men because like that warren had to fight hawkeye right you remember the battle on utopia where it was bullseye as hawkeye mm -hmm. versus warren like you want to see characters go i know who you are that's the appeal of avengers versus x-men right and these people it's just like they have no connection to one another i just i don't know it didn't work for me especially because the thing that makes warren interesting more than anything else, is his character relationships to the other original X-Men, his relationship to Betsy. They do a whole thing where, like, he befriends the Apocalypse clone yeah. that we mentioned earlier, Evan Sabiner, and, like, I guess that's fine. But I don't know. But then there's also, like, the... So the relationship that was contentious in the 90s between Wolverine and, and Archangel, what happens with the reintroduction of the original five is that Angel... And the new Wolverine... The Teen Angel story is that he dates X-23. Which which is a very... Re, that's a recoloring of, a, of the Psylocke relationship. Yes. It tackles both his relationship with Betsy and his relationship with Wolverine. Because as you note, like, in the 80s, actually, when Warren briefly rejoins the team, because after Dark Phoenix, Scott quits and Angel comes back, to be on the team but very soon afterward he's like wolverine is a murdering weirdo and i'm not willing to be on this team they have long had a contentious relationship continuing into the 90s as you point out and so yeah having him date wolverine's like clone retconned into a daughter whatever she is who also has the 90s betsy i want to be a good person but i feel driven to kill thing going on i i didn't hate it it just it felt to me like Warren was the teen character that had the least, like there was less planned there, you know? And you know, and you know what showed about that? Because when he kept yeah. the Black Vortex fire wings, I was like, oh, all right. We got to throw something at the wall here was sort of what it felt like to me. Him keeping those wings let me know that they were like, oh, let's just see. And then eventually that character loses those wings whenever they have to all go back due to the sacrifice of Mimic. Like Cable takes Mimic's wings and replaces them. Which I thought was funny. 
<laughs> no. Because those are Angel's wings, because Mimic did copy those from Angel in the 60s. Like, so it is kind of by the transitive property. I guess, like, my thing with it was just of that original team, I really like Warren, and I felt like there just wasn't a ton that he was given to do, and he missed out on the opportunity to have conversations with yes. himself, which would have been interesting. So I just didn't care for that. I thought the X-23 thing was fine. She also kind of looks like Candy Southern. Yeah, yeah. So it was like kind of all of his love interests like together. Oh, wow. That's ve- that is super, yes. Because, yeah, because she's like similarly like a brunette who has like, you know, that kind of sharp features. <laughs> Her claws. Right. <laughs> The thing I really liked in terms of Bendis' Teen Warren was that he was the one who was like, fuck this. And like Teen Gene had to keep manipulating his mind to keep him. Yeah, he was the first one to be like, I don't, what? I don't want to do any of this. Like, I'm out. Because that feels very Warren, especially at that age. And so I liked that. But other than that, he felt a little directionless to me as, as a character. But then, you know, that period, I understand why people really liked it. And I think there's a lot of great stories in it. But like the time traveling teens were just never my cup of personally. But then, but Connor, then the craziest thing, this is why it's so like all the Warren reading recommendations are going to be like from like very early or either very recent. Because then in the uncanny X-Men run, after that, you find out that Archangel still exists. It's a great moment for um, one of the reader questions this week, which is Max Huftalen. Huftalen? Max, I hope I am saying it right in one of those two attempts. Writes, hi there, I love the pod. It's my favorite pod to listen to at work. Thank you. Warren is interesting to me because while his aesthetic is right up my alley, there's not a lot that I know about his character. He has minor roles in the movies where he barely speaks, and most of the modern stuff seems to eschew him entirely or feature him in non-speaking roles. His role in House of X involves him immediately getting killed during the assault on the Mother Mold. He did get to speak a little during Ten of Swords creation, though. Am I just missing stuff from the modern era, or was the majority of his stuff in the 70s and 80s? It feels like writers nowadays, both in comics and in film, don't want to know what to do with him. And I think that goes back to what we were just saying, which is like, he was actually very prominent in the 90s. Yeah. But only for a while. And then he and Betsy kind of go off page in the late 90s for a minute. And then there was a long period where they could not figure out what to do with him. And the majority of his stuff that's worth reading is in X-Force, not in any main X-Men title. For a while, if you were a Warren fan, it was really that or nothing. When he is cured of Archangel by Betsy and as a result turns into a like tabula rasa blank slate, you can't really develop an affection for Warren as a character from that version of the character. And they clearly figured out that wasn't working because then they move into the story that you were just talking about. So like dive into that. Archangel still exists. And so you have these two personalities and two physical bodies that are completely separated. And once again, as a shout out to like the Craig Kyle storyline, people are attempting to steal the genetic technology, the celestial technology from Warren's wings and create like an army of their own archangels. Right, of like cloned archangels. Yeah, cloned archangels. And so I think that when they finally combine the two, and that happens at the end of that run. And he gets all of his memories back and also gets the ability to shift between the two forms as he desires. Yeah, that happens in the, there's an uncanny X-Men run where that happens in Astonishing where Psylocke is still helping him telepathically do that. That's, that's kind of 
where we are now. Right. If you look at where his power set is currently, if you look at where his personality is, if you look at the trauma he's been through, when he dies on that mission with House of X, when he's reborn, when the when the egg is hatched, he's human, he's flesh and blood, and he can still he can go between forms. He I don't think he likes to. There's a bit of hesitance. I thought it was interesting that in Ten of Swords creation, compare it to Empire, where yes. he is angel. Mm-hmm. When he goes to Otherworld and is like, let's suit up, and he's keeping an eye on Apocalypse, death. he goes as Archangel. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting. And you see him having a conversation where it's clear that he's Archangel, but he's himself. So those halves of his psyche have been reintegrated, but because he's not starring in any of the books right now, I mean, quite honestly, I would love, I, I love that vibe with him and Monet in, and, and whether you see it as romantic or just like bitchy friends. Or just business partners. I mean, the complaints about the salad, someone who is finally in the equal financially. There was that book that was solicited called X Corp that we don't know where that was going. Yeah. And I hope if that book does come together, that it's a book about Warren and Monet. Oh, Because that yes. would be, that would rocket up a list of, of faves for me because <laughs> I adore those characters. And I think that they are both all over the place right now. Like Monet, I think actually, I mean, Hickman loves Monet and you can tell she is not on a roster right now, but she is everywhere across and the whole line. And she gets called in for everything. I mean, giant size X-Men storm was a yes. storm and Monet issue. It was a storm and Monet issue because none of the smart people who think they're super smart could figure out how to fix it. And <laughs> Monet figured it out. It's like, take that Hank. <laughs> I would love a book that is about them. It's specifically that like capitalist. It would be a compliment to Marauders. Like the way that, yes. you know, the way that they're, trying to also corner the free market to maintain the like socialist utopia on Krakoa. What was the, what was the person who sent the email? What was their name? That was Max Huftalen. Max, definitely read the Rick Remender run of Uncanny X-Force. You're going to have to go back and read the X-Factor issues as well. You have to go back to see the introduction of like him as Archangel, if that's what you want to see. In terms of modern stuff, I absolutely think that the one you want to read is the Rick Remender Uncanny X-Force. Read the all-new X-Men regarding Teen Angel uh, and the Black Vortex. And X-Men Blue and all of X-Men that. Blue, which was... Which, X-Men Blue is very interesting because you also get to see Hank do something you don't expect him to do. Yeah. From... Uh, Okay, if the two choices are science or sorcery, that you'll get like some fun stuff there. I, I think you're not wrong that modern writers have been a little unsure of what to do with Warren outside of the X-Force stuff. And I'm interested to see where he goes from here. Your suggestion for that being the, X, the X-Corp book, that's so smart. They're running the business stuff. Yeah. So if anyone is going to be X-Corp, it would be like them or Sunspot. So the last big story, I guess, that I want to tackle before we go into the other reader questions is Cameron Hodge. I mentioned him on last week's episode. I have talked on Twitter a little bit. People are like, tell me more. Tell me more about what you think. So here's the thing. People have really come to enjoy a specific thing about this podcast that they told me, which is the way that I and my guests talk about the queer stuff in the X-Men. Warren Worthington III is a very heterosexual character. However, he is the specific type of straight male character where 
I feel like sometimes he does a little cocaine at the yacht club and a guy sucks his dick. Bobby doesn't come out in the vacuum. He's making stupid jokes about Ileana. Right. Gene says you're gay. Right. And then who is the first person he brings up that's hot? It's Warren. It's Warren. I think if Bobby wants to hit that, he needs to learn about a different kind of snow. <laughs> that's the energy that Warren gives me because I've known, I have known men like that. <laughs> He's dangerously handsome in a way that gay boys can pin their affection on because yeah. they get to say, well, that's handsome to everyone, right? And if you hang out with him at the VIP room at One Oak, you never know what's going to happen. That's what I'm saying. But the point is, overall, he's a pretty hetero character. There is, however, one really queer storyline that Warren has. And it is never made textual, but it is the storyline with Cameron Hodge. So Cameron Hodge is a character who's introduced in X Factor 1 in 1986 by Bob Layton and Jackson Geese. He is established more thoroughly by Louise Simonson after she takes over the book. Much like we talked about last week with Bobby, and much like I talked about with Jay Edidin on the Cyclops episode, the original X-Men in the 60s have very, very little backstory given to them. Each one of them gets a backup feature that shows how they joined the team. Like later. Like in the... Like yeah, in like, in like the 40s and yeah. 50s. Yeah. With Warren's, he gets more than most of the others. You find out about his wealthy parents. You find out about how he hid his wings at boarding school. And you also find out that he saved his classmates at the boarding school in sort of an angel disguise from a fire. fire. Yeah. Yeah. And that that was what sort of inspired him to become the superhero called the Avenging Angel. He's the only X-Man who tries to be a hero before Xavier recruits them. Had his own costume, had a gun. Yeah. I was making it all work for him to some extent. Candy Southern is established very quickly to be one of those classmates. Cameron Hodge is a retcon character who was there. He's introduced in X-Factor 1 as Angel's old college roommate. But as the story goes on, it becomes clear that they met initially at that boarding school when they were younger than that. Listener Brian Gerhart wrote in about an issue of X-Factor I really love, X-Factor 47. That's a fill-in. It's written and drawn by Kieran Dwyer. So it's like not the standard writing team or the standard artist. It's not Louise Simonson. It's not Walt Simonson. It's not any of those people. It's after the Inferno and he's still dealing with like being Archangel and figuring that all out. And it's a very odd Warren solo spotlight issue where he breaks up like a child sex trafficking okay. of all like right. teen runaways in the city. Brian, I appreciate it, sent me some pages because I remembered this, but it was good to actually just look at it. There's a flashback to when he saves the other students at the boarding school from the fire. And you see Cameron Hodge staring up at the angel in the flames with hunger. It says, Cameron, I should have known then, should have realized he was the devil in disguise. So here's the thing with Cameron Hodge. Cameron Hodge is initially X-Factor's sort of business manager, the way that Candy was for the Defenders. He is the human character who's giving them advice. And it's him and Warren who come up with the premise for X-Factor, except it's really Cameron who suggests it, which is that X-Factor pretends that they are mutant hunters, human mutant yeah, hunters. Yeah, they come up with the Exterminators kind and of then, like... And then, yeah, they operate as superheroes as the Exterminators, but as X-Factor, they are these human mercenaries who hunt mutants. And the way that they are actually operating is that the evil mutants they capture, they bring to justice. And the mutant runaways that they bring in, like Rusty and Skids and Richter 
and Boom Boom. Tabitha. Yeah. They train as their students at X-Factor's headquarters. They all think this is a good idea. It's very nakedly a bad idea. And I think that (laughs) Louise Simonson, when she took over the book, was like, why would he suggest this? Because all it does, I mean, there's a reason that the X-Men don't trust X-Factor, right? Yeah. They think X-Factor are like weird human mutant hunters, like the purifiers. You know, they're just like, fuck those guys. It only makes sense. It only makes sense when Louise Simonson establishes that Cameron Hodge is a secret anti-mutant extremist bigot. He leads an organization called The Right. Literally called The Right. Like The Right, as in directionally where this country shouldn't be headed. Yeah, and like, but also like the right to power. Yeah. But it's called The Right and it's not subtle. He funds the right by, like, embezzling money from X Factor and from Worthington Industries. And he has set everything in motion. He purposely wanted to inflame human mutant tensions. And the whole premise of X Factor does that because, of course, it would. Because there's a public team, like, saying mutants are dangerous. Contact us if you see one. And it's like, yeah, of course, that's going to add to anti mutant hysteria. Hodge's obsession with Warren is strange it has a very i'm just gonna say it it feels gay to me cameron hodge feels like a gay character and i am intrigued by the idea of gay villains i said on last week's episode i don't think gay characters need to be good people i think that the answer is to have enough characters that it's okay for one of the gay characters to be evil because to me cameron hodge's story makes a lot more sense if you read it a certain way. And that way, which is the way I read Cameron Hodge, is that Cameron has been in love with Warren since they were like 14. Maybe they fooled around a little in boarding school the way the boys in boarding school do. And it was probably one of those things like, well, he's so handsome. How could anyone not want to? Right. And it's like, it's probably Cameron being like, I'm not gay. You know, Warren's just my best friend or whatever. Because he's also that hyper repressed wasp. That's the way I read it. And then what happens is he finds out Warren is a mute. So it's like Warren is not only more handsome than him, richer than him, everything more than him and Cameron by himself is already pretty well to do but Warren is like the ultimate right Mm -hmm. and so then he also has this other thing and it makes him superhuman and like Cameron just can't deal with it because it's like not only does this set us apart even further but like the way I read it like but he won't love me and is it like one of those weird things like oh I'm disgusted by this thing I'm attracted to yes that's how it's like he He is sexually obsessed. And that is why I love that panel from X Factor 47, because the way Cameron is staring up at that angel, it feels lustful to me. So what happens with Cameron Hodge, as I sort of related in the character file, basically he decides that he's going to take control of all of Warren's assets by goading Warren into committing suicide. So the way that he does that is by manipulating hospital records to indicate that Warren's wings have gangrene. And they should be After the attack from the Marauders, and that to save his life, they have to be amputated. And his parents are dead. There is no next of kin to make the decision. So Hodge basically forces it through to save his life, et cetera, et cetera. Because he knows that Warren, deprived of his wings, will see life as no longer worth living. And Warren does 
as far as we can tell, it's not entirely clear, but it does seem like Warren tries to kill himself yeah. in that helicopter. And he's saved by Apocalypse, who brings him back, which Hodge hadn't necessarily counted on. Once that happens and he's back and they all turn on Hodge and the exterminators reveal that they're X-Factor and that the whole thing was an ill-advised concept to begin with. And then the, their students take the name Exterminators, Rusty and Skids and, and Richter and Boom Boom and Wizkid. Who's back? Who's back? I hope Rusty comes back too, Rusty and Skids, because Rusty was boring, but I love a ginge, so I'm always... <laughs> At that time, Hodge and the right help Nastir, the demon behind Inferno, who's been corrupting Madeline Pryor. They get the baby sacrifices for him to open up the portal to Earth. And in return, Nastir makes Hodge immortal. That's all retcons that you sort of learn later. But what really happens is when Death comes back to himself and is worn again because he thinks he's killed Bobby and it shocks him to his senses and he returns as Archangel, Hodge kidnaps Candy Southern and tortures the living shit out of her to the point where she's essentially brain dead. And by the time Warren realizes she's been kidnapped because a lot has been going on and she had stormed out when she saw him with Jean, it is very the night when Stacy died. It yeah. is absolutely like a fridging story. By the time Warren gets there, much like with Gwen, there's no way to save her. Like Spider-Man is the one who kills Gwen by trying to save her because there's no way to save her, you know? And Candy is already gone. So Warren disconnects her from the life support and kills Hodge, apparently. His wings lash out and cut Hodge's head off. Meanwhile, though, the right is doing all kinds of things. One of the other agents of the right, the animator, is the one that kills Doug Ramsey over in the mutants. So Hodge looms large and he comes back in Extinction Agenda, which is sort of Claremont's last event in uh, 91, where he takes over the anti-mutant apartheid government on Genosha. His head has survived because he's immortal, thanks to Nastir's gift, but he's just a head, so he has a scary robot body. I don't know. the He's a weird fucking character, as I said last week. Well, because he's a person that cannot... Like, the bigotry is so individualistic it's like you don't hate mutants you hate warren you are obsessed with warren what is that to the point where you felt the need to do that to candy southern who wasn't even involved in x factor anymore it again feels to me like it's all very talented mr ripley do you get what i'm uh, saying yes. like he can't abide her because she got to be warren's lover yeah and he can't abide warren because warren won't love him and because he wants so badly for Warren to love him, everything about Warren becomes anathema to him, which turns him into this anti-mutant extremist. That's just the only way this storyline really makes sense to me, and that's how I read it. And in the 90s, Cameron becomes part of the Phalanx, and so does Candy Southern, which is really interesting. The Phalanx, who are sort of coming back in the House of X Powers of Ten stuff, they're kind of like the Borg from Star Trek. She's also assimilated into the Phalanx, and she's like, it wasn't enough for you to kill me, Cameron, like you had to turn me into a monster. But she manages to have closure with Warren. They get to have a conversation that's good. And then she tears herself apart to stop Hodge. I just think it's 
I don't know. I'm excited to see if Hodge and Candy will be back. He had he had one other appearance in the New Mutants run mm-hmm. when he when he mutilated another mutant, uh, Karma. Yeah, he he's the one who damages Karma's leg, and she has to have it amputated because he comes back. The purifiers find him. I think it's part of the Necrotia storyline a little bit. It is the transmode virus. Yeah, it's transmode. But I think it's after Necrotia because Doug is back. Oh yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, I have to look. I have to look that up. But when he comes back, I was like, oh. But like, no interaction with Warren at all. Right. Anyway, now that the transmode virus and posthumanism and the phalanx are what Moira McTaggart, Moira X, is trying to stop. I think that we might see Cameron and Candy pop up again. And I would love personally to see Candy Southern become a phalanx derived superhero the way that Warlock is. I think that would be super cool. Oh. Because I like Candy Southern and it would be nice to give her a real story where she's not. In the same way that like Spider Gwen has become a big hit. Yes. I feel like if you give Candy Southern the opportunity to be her own person and not just Warren's girlfriend she tragically died it could be fun because she was a pretty prominent character and was much more involved in superhero stuff than when Stacey ever was you know what I mean so you say that and now that I go like what is the big game as far as like with having like any sort of like the transmo virus or the technarch on Krakoa well we know there's something weird going on with Warlock because Doug was hiding Warlock from the quiet council and from everyone and we don't know why because doug doesn't know that moira is secretly fighting the technarchy yeah but now everybody knows warlock's around and they're like busy right now with the tournament but afterward i imagine we're gonna deal with that and i'm interested to see what goes on there if in my dreams it is true that x corp is a book about warren and monet i would love to see candy come back and do a phalanx plot with candy that allows candy to stick around because If you're not going to have Warren get back together with Betsy, I think having Warren have an interesting relationship with a new evolution of Candy Southern would be a very interesting direction to go in. And again, it's like Madeline Pryor. If you give them powers, then the how do they interact with the X-Men aspect becomes a lot less tricky. Oh, yeah. You know? With Zeb Wells and the Hellions bringing Maddie back. Uh, you go I love it so you much. go oh okay this, yeah. God, this definitely so could happen yeah Candy and Madeline are from the exact same era and both get eliminated around the same time and it's because they're like sort of complications that the narrative needs to get rid of I have thoughts about Madeline and thoughts about Candy Southern <laughs> both of our characters I would be very excited to take for a spin so I think that now would be a good time for us to play the housewives game. Okay. Do you have a tagline for Warren Worthington III if you were a cast member on The Real Houses of Krakoa? Oh, yeah. If the first thing that he would say with his, like, Krakoan flower turn, uh, it would be, a lot of people don't know where mutants come from. Well, I know where I come from. Money. There you go. I like that. Mine was much more vulgar, and it was... Don't talk to me about blue balls. <laughs> okay, well, we handled both of them. We I handled, handled both of them. You handled the... Warren, you yeah, <laughs> I feel like he would be good on that show because he's messy. Oh, he's messy, and he definitely would say, oh, it's that much? 
Right. Like he's very, he would, he very much would be like a mention it all, mention it all. Like that oh. would be, he would be one of those. You know what I mean? And any sort of exit also do, doing any sort of housewife twirl with wings. With wings win. is just really, you do like talk about gone with the wind fast, right? <laughs> it's very, very, very funny that some of these mutants that gay people do love, that queer people mm-hmm. love, easily fit into reality TV. Yeah, Claremont's X-Men was camp in a lot of ways, in a good way. I don't mean that in a sense that it wasn't well-written. I just mean that everything was so heightened and oh, dramatic yeah. and queer. I am fire and life incarnate. Okay, you've had too yeah, many Yeah, okay, drinks. bitch, right, yeah. <laughs> it's like, love that for you. <laughs> That's before it's even supposed to be a cosmic force. She just launches into that monologue by her damn self. <laughs> oh my God. As Tony pointed out last week, the scene where Warren is captured by Callisto and tied up in the warlock <gasps> yes. in his underwear is directly taken from Barbarella. Oh, it's not only taken from Barbarella. It's also, I mean, that is v- visually, you look at that and you go, oh, that's Rocky Horror. Okay. And it's all from very high camp, gay inclined material oh yeah so there's that i have a couple little reader questions that i would like to get to matt s writes is age of apocalypse warren the most pure expression of the character had he not been transformed by apocalypse he's the embodiment of the rich white centrist who preserves their own wealth and status in the face of atrocities despite deep down knowing those actions are immoral um yes I think think that it's a very, very good representation of what wealth can do if you feel like you can get by with it. Like we said, the fact that his skin color changes when he becomes Archangel, it was a design choice that was interesting, but it also, the fact that he becomes a visible mutant is really important. And I do think that without that, he makes jokes sometimes when he's just like, what are you, a socialist? Like, he's definitely a more conservative character as the X-Men go. It is being victimized first by Hodge and then by Apocalypse that makes, well, actually, first by Callisto, yeah. then by Cameron Hodge, and then by Apocalypse that makes him reassess sort of his position in the world. And I think that the Age of Apocalypse version is the entitled ultimate expression of white wealth that he could have been if he hadn't had that experience. His excuse is he goes, well, no, humans and mutants can interact here, but I don't want to get involved in all of that. I'm just not a political person. Oh, you know, it's very like, it's that kind that. of thing. Yeah. Sam Woodcock writes, Hey, Connor, loving the podcast. So big thanks for going through all the effort each week. Huge. Betsy and Warren have been my favorite ex-couple for forever, but their time together was spent while Betsy had been body shot by Spiral and Matsuo, with Betsy's fate irrevocably intertwined with Kanon, and the trauma of their shared experience is one of the initial foundations of their coming together. We talked about that, and we absolutely agree. We ain't really seen any interaction between them since Betsy returned to her original form, which she chose and created for herself, after having refused that gift numerous times before from external sources. I wonder why they haven't really spoken, what Warren feels when he looks at Betsy, if he still sees the woman he loved or at least recognizes her in spirit, if not body, and lastly, what he must feel when he sees Kanon, who again, he's had no interaction with, especially since she's now running around with one of the Marauders. Shit, that was long. Apologies again, mate. Cheers, Sam. P.S. I'm a Brit boy, London born and bred, number one Betsy fan, and I hate to break it to you and Teeny, but I say 616. Well, you know what? You can say 616. It's clear from Teeny's Twitter poll that everyone says 616 and Teeny and I are just weird, but I think 616 
sounds better. And I'm going to continue to say it in a posh British accent whenever it comes up because Saturnine is talking about Earth 616 in my <laughs> world. But I understand that 616 is the canonical pronunciation. So thank you for writing in because we did ask, what do the Brits think? I, de- I definitely say 616. There is that interaction in Disassembled. And disassembled, and Betsy is in her body, in her that she rebuilt. You get to see his rage about being released once again as Archangel. And I think if that's the amount of tension we want to build up until they have their conversation again on Krakoa, I'm fine with that. I don't need to see them just palling around because when they talk and meet, it needs to be important. Right. I want it to be plot important. I feel the same way about Betsy and Kanon's interaction that's going to happen that they're clearly Teeny's building toward, but I don't want it to happen as part of Ten of Swords. Like I want that to be its own story. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to see them at the Tiki bar. I want it to be like, here's a story about these two women. And similarly, I want whatever's going on with Warren and Betsy to be something that gets dedicated page time. All I can tell you is when Tini was on this podcast for the inaugural episode on Betsy Braddock, I brought up that Warren only really knew Betsy in Conan's body, dated her in Conan's body, and had sex with her only in Conan's body. Lots of sex. Yeah, and there's lots of weird stuff there. I think it would be really interesting to see how Warren feels about those two women, because Betsy is the woman he loved, but Conan is the woman who he was intimate with physically. All I know is when I said all this on the episode, Tini said, no comment. So clearly there's a plan because she wasn't able to respond to my question. I think that there's a lot of potential for those characters to do interesting stuff together, whether they get back together or not. There's this song Pink Light by Muna, the band that came up on my shuffle while I was like reading some Betsy stuff. And it just like, it's all about your ex and thinking about your ex, but like not being happy about your body. And I was just like, this is a song about Betsy and Warren. (laughs) You know, sometimes they just hit you like that. I agree that Kanon teamed up with Grey Crow is also interesting. And the thing about Kanon is that she has no history with any of these villains that they're all giving amnesty to. Yeah. The only real villain she had a connection to was Matsuo, who's dead and is not coming back because he wasn't a mutant. I guess she probably knows Gorgon and Silver Samurai from their various pasts in the Japanese underworld. Yeah. But she didn't experience the mutant massacre. So like to her, Grey Crow is just another one of these random weirdos that she's forced to interact with now. That she's forced to lead. And he is the closest thing to a level head. He's the closest thing to a normal person on the team. Yeah. Besides her. Him and Alex, to be fair. But Alex has his problems. Yeah, I'm worried about Havoc. I am too. On that team. I'm always worried about Havoc. I don't think it's a betrayal in the sense of like working with marauders. No, because we're all having to accept this now. Yeah, and if she was working with Blockbuster and Harpoon, it would be so much closer. Grey Crow isn't the one who did that to Warren. Yeah. If the promise of Krakoa is every mutant gets a clean slate, The tricky thing for Kanon is that she can't have a clean slate because everyone looks at her and sees Psylocke, which is, again, why, yes, she does need that code name and does need that costume, because (laughs) that tension is the whole point of the character. None of these people really met Revanche. There were, like, ten of them that ever met her. So she is Psylocke but isn't Psylocke in terms of the way people knew Psylocke, and that's what's interesting about that character's journey, is she is finally claiming this 
mantle that pop culturally and zeitgeist wise was always hers to claim you know yeah so i am very interested to see what happens with all three of those characters and i feel confident that teeny has a plan so i'm excited to see how that all shakes out what i would like to do now before we wrap up is specific story recommendations i love the classic stuff again i think that the 60s x-men is pretty rough If you're going to start reading 60s X-Men, you can honestly read like the first 10 issues. I guess read through the first 14 so you get the Sentinels and all that. Lee and Kirby are not on the book for that long. And you get that gist really quickly. And then you can kind of skip to 49, which is the first appearance of Lorna Dane. And sort of read from there if you want. Then in the 70s and 80s, Warren isn't in a ton of stuff. He's not even on the East Coast. Right, because he's in the Champions and then he's in the Defenders. I don't particularly recommend the Champions or the Defenders. There is a Defenders wink and a nod in the Cena Grace Bobby solo series. Mm-hmm. But even then, you 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 kind of get what it was. Yeah, it's just not a super memorable era of storytelling. Anyone who wants to read classic X-Men, it's worth reading the Dark Phoenix Saga, which he's in, in a minor role. He and Candy pop up in that. X-Factor, like that original run on X-Factor in the 80s. X-Factor is the book that changes him. That's the book that made Warren a major player in a way that he hadn't been. It's where Apocalypse is introduced. It's where he's transformed to death and then becomes Archangel. It's where Candy dies. It's where all of the stuff with Cameron Hodge happens. And... It's good. I mean, it's just a really good book. And then after that, he is on the gold team in the 90s, which is Uncanny X-Men, Storm's team. And all of the stuff with him and Betsy is in that book, their relationship, and is good. I don't particularly love it starting around 96. I'm not a fan of the Crimson Dawn stuff and all of that. And then honestly, I would say to jump to Uncanny X-Force. Yeah. If you want to read Messiah Complex to sort yeah, of see why yeah. they have an X-Force now. Sure. Because it was a sh- it was a tonal shift. Uh, then go to X-Force, uh, Craig Kyle. This is the mm-hmm. uh, 2008. Uh, I think a lot of cover art. There was some uh, Craig Yost. Who mm-hmm. else? There were a few other people. And then after that run of X-Force... Then uh, you can jump to Uncanny X-Force. Uncanny X-Force by Rick Remender. Volume 1 is going to be the final solution in the uh, kind of Dark Angel saga. Once you get into Volume 2, he's not in that one. Yeah, once he's been reborn as the Blank Slate version, then you can just kind of skip to the present. Yeah, I would say... (laughs) Read that, and then you can pick up whatever you want to now. If you want to figure out why he can still change, you can read the Colin Bunn uh, Uncanny X-Force, where Magneto leads a team that is almost an X-Force team, because Magneto's like, don't kill. Okay, I guess people But I will warn you, it is Inhumans versus X-Men related. So you will have yes. to contend with that. If you've been trying to avoid that period, it's unfortunately all up in that with yeah, the Pops you... and the Terrigenness and all that. And but that's also if you're if you're one of those people who doesn't know who Exodus is, the Exodus comes back. Exodus does come back there, yeah. And there's good Psylocke stuff in there, actually. Really good a very good Psylocke Magneto final yeah. interaction. Yeah. And then you're caught up. That's he's one of the few characters where you can say, and then you're caught up. 
Jay, do you have anything else about Warren you'd like to talk about before we wrap up? I want to say that any and all media depictions of him fail to do him justice because it is so hard to show him killing people on screen, big screen or a TV screen. Mm -hmm. He's barely in X-Men the Animated Series. Well, so is Psylocke. You'll notice that the two of them are never in it because I think they are too... Like Wolverine in the in the animated series, kind of a toned down version of Wolverine, yeah. and then Archangel and Psylocke were the two other like real killers on that team are not in the cartoon. Yeah, they're in three episodes. Yeah, there's three episodes where you see him, and then he's not in X Men Evolution except for with one episode where he is the Avenging Angel. He's a hero mm-hmm. operating by himself, and he eventually there's a vision at the end of the series that he will be, to be turned into Archangel. Wolverine, the X Men. He is in that for a blip. He was barely in X-Men The Last Stand. Yeah, he barely, barely, barely factors into the Fox X-Men movies. Like, Ben Foster plays him for a minute in Last yeah. Stand. And then some blonde twink played him a in. A British guy from <laughs> a different show played him in Apocalypse, where they chose to keep the white skin, but give him the biometallic wings because they already had four blue characters in that film (laughs) and that film is oh you can say it's bad it's bad i mean and the reason we care when apocalypse turns a character into one of his horsemen is that they're a character we give a shit about so that film introduces like magneto is one of them but it introduces angel and storm and psylocke as horsemen but we don't know them and so we don't care And it's just, it's weak, in my opinion. The real problem is Angel is a character who's fun and funny. And what's fun about him is his personality, that he's like kind of a dick. And rich and hot and aware of it. He's not dumb. It's the same reason that Emma Frost hasn't really been done. Apart from the Wolverine and the X-Men cartoon, which I did like. Yeah. They haven't really done Emma Frost well either because... Emma Frost and Warren are very similar characters who need Real Housewives type scenes. Like they need scenes that are dialogue driven where they get to have the upper hand because they make a witty comment or because they're like bitchy in a funny way. And, you know, honestly, the Marvel movies did a really good job with that with Tony Stark, who's a similar character. Smart. And I just don't think that any of the X-Men adaptations have successfully done that. And I think that that's a very important aspect of Emma, of Warren, and of Betsy. Yes. That none of the adaptations have done for any of those three, really. And so I would love to see more of that. I mean, I've always said I think the X-Men are better for television than for film. Because I do think that the interpersonal soap opera dynamics are really what make those characters pop. I think that Warren and characters like him lend themselves more to intimate scenes rather than big blockbuster film types. And with the advent of technology that's good enough and streaming services, it's way closer to being able to happen in that format than it was. Yes. And I, so like, I really would love to see, I mean, I've said I prefer to keep the X-Men separate from the MCU and just launch a new universe that is its own thing, but I'm sure they're going to bring into the MCU. I think, though, and I, I stand by this, that it would be better as a TV show than as a film franchise. And you could do big movie events, like if you want to do, I mean, please don't do Dark Phoenix again. No, don't touch it. It's not don't a- touch it. It's just never going to, it's never going to work. Just don't touch it. But if you want to do Cassandra Nova or something as a movie or like do Age of Apocalypse, you could do that. But 
I think it would be better as a TV show most of the time. But the way that the X-Files had that movie between two seasons once, mm-hmm. but you could do that kind of thing. What else? Is there anything else you want to chat about? His costumes are iconic. He's the original five member, I think, that gets... Him and Gene get the most interesting costumes throughout mm-hmm. there. I think he has the most costumes. I love that Magneto gives him that red and white costume oh, as, like, the, part of a, oh, as part yeah. of a trap. And then it's so chic, though, that he just wears it for the next, like, 15 years. <laughs> it's much like... Psylocke gets that swimsuit from the hand, and Polaris gets her costume first from Mesmero, her first costume is green, and then the purple one she uses for a while, she gets from Eric the Red, the Shi'ar villain. So, like, a lot of X-Men just get their costumes from bad guys, and then they're like, oh, this is cool, I'll just keep wearing it. Yeah, they go, well, joke's on you, I think it looks pretty cute. Anytime that a guy wore pink, I loved it. And I just, Mm -hmm. I mean, I said at the beginning of the podcast, but him and Gambit were two characters, like, blue and pink? On a boy? Well, and talk about characters they should just bite the bullet and say are bisexual. Gambit is yeah. like, I mean, oh. come on. He can kinetically charge a certain part of your brain, Connor. And it wouldn't even be risky for them because he's married to a woman. They don't even have to have him sleep with men. Just have him mention that he has in the past, like John Constantine style. <laughs> it's that easy. I think at that point, trench coat, cigarette, stubble, at that point, they're like, wait a second, Gambit, do you also know magic? <laughs> right, yeah, no. But like, you know, but but that's the thing with Constantine, it was a throwaway joke back in the day because it was like, sure, John Constantine's fuck men, why not? Gambit has that energy. He just does. <laughs> but I stand by bisexual colossus being the real way of the future. Ooh. Give the man something to do. Jay, thank you so much for being my guest. This was super fun. Thank you for having me. And uh, I would love for you to tell the listeners where they can find you and follow you on social media. I'd love for you to do some plugs. I know you have a new album. Oh, yeah. I have an album. It came out in April. It's called Jay Jordan, y'all. It is 48 minutes and it's really funny. I haven't put any X-Men jokes on my albums and i think the next one that i do within the next two years will have x-men jokes that i'm very happy and excited about so jay jordan y'all is the album you can follow me on social media just at j-a-y-j-u-r-d-e-n on all social media so yeah reach out to me i'm obnoxiously on twitter i will definitely respond just ask me anything we can be we can be friends yeah he's he's very personable we met on Twitter. <laughs> you can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can write in to Cerebro with comments, questions, and feedback at CerebroCast at gmail.com. And you can find all of the episodes, transcripts, and visual histories as I get them done. More are coming soon, I promise. It's been a pretty crazy couple months at work. At CerebroCast.com, which is the official podcast landing page. It's actually just a sub page of my personal website but cerebrocast.com will redirect you to it (laughs) thank you all for listening for joining us these episodes i know are are long sometimes and thank you again for writing in all of those comments about last week's episode i love when we get more fan interaction and i'm sorry i couldn't read all of them on the show but i always appreciate your thoughts Stay tuned because there's only bigger and better things coming from Cerebro in the weeks to come and months to come. I have a lot of exciting guests lined up and I can't wait to share them with you. So until next time, everybody, bye. Bye. X-Men, X-Men. 
In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is 